Hello, Westorians. Welcome back. It is Sunday, July 10th, 2022. It's important to clarify the year because maybe people will be listening to this 500 years in the future. <laughs> Seems unlikely. But hey, you never know. I mean, we're about to discuss events, what, thousands of years in the past. So, hey. <laughs> people might be listening to this thousands of years in the past. Whoa. Yeah. Now you just you blew, never know. You just blew my mind. <laughs> Thousands of years ago in the future. <laughs> Thousands of Aquatine years character. in the past. <laughs> They're listening to us. Now. Wait, what the? Time has no meaning. That's what today is. My friends, today is Time is Meaningless Day. We have officially dubbed it within the first... Actually, that was yesterday, but it doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> good call, good call. Is your drink today some sort of temporal anomaly beverage, or is it more Bolton-themed? I would say it's more Bolton themed. Yeah, it's pretty pinkish. Easy. It's more red, darker. It's bloodish. That's the color of blood. It's the blood of traitors in the north <laughs> on ice. Or just <laughs> the blood of people you don't like. I think that may be more appropriate for Boltons. <laughs> people who can't uh, defend themselves. Those poor berries could not defend themselves from being <laughs> crushed into your beverage. What is, this is the, yeah, this is the rainbow naked drink. It's got bee juice, gets that deep red, plus strawberry. Bang and watermelon Mountain Dew and strawberry sparkling ice. Four part mix. Four red beverages all in one. Very nice. <laughs> I don't have an interesting beverage. I have my usual chocolate coffee, but I do have my very cool Gregor the Toasty Lord of the Breadfort shirt on today, which is a very cool thing. It's by San Rixian. And of course, since we're talking about House Bolton and the Red Kings of the Dreadfort today... Well, I didn't have an actual Bolton shirt, but this is the Breadfort's pretty close to the Dreadfort. It's it's next door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's where they get their bread. But it's well protected because it's a fort. Well, depending on your perspective, the Dreadfort is where the breads get their dread. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to our friend Nina, good queen alley with one L dot Latest blog post is discussing. Who is a worse ruler, Cersei or Robert, and why? And uh, it's a pretty good one. I think you you may already know what the answer is, but the whys, the, the breakdown of, of what makes one better than the other is interesting. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You all are most encouraged to send us questions to join the discussion live or in advance ahead of each episode or to send us responses to the episodes after you've consumed them. All of those or any one of them are valid and encouraged ways to 
engage with History of Westeros podcast. And we will engage you with a trivia question to start off. We're going to use a quote to help us foster this question. Bruce Bolton himself says about his son, quote, His blood is bad. It needs to be leached. The leeches suck away the bad blood, all the rage and pain. No man can think so full of anger. Ramsay, though, his tainted blood would poison even leeches, I fear. The question is, whose blood actually does poison leeches throughout the course of A Song of Ice and Fire and History of Westeros? Answer, as usual, at the end. We'll get right into it with the first mention of not just the Red Kings, but of the Boltons and the Dreadfort, all in one very efficient paragraph here. House Greenwood, House Towers, House Amber, and House Frost met similar ends, together with a score of lesser houses and petty kings whose very names are lost to history. Yet the bitterest foes of Winterfell were undoubtedly the Red Kings of the Dreadfort, those grim lords of House Bolton, whose domains of old stretched from the Last River to the White Knife and as far south as the Sheep's Head Hills. Yeah, so like I said, all of those there in one fell swoop. Nina noted that I used appropriate phraseology. I wasn't, didn't realize that I was doing it, but it's a happy accident. The phrase one fell swoop was used in Shakespeare in Macbeth to convey a sense of viciousness, almost evil, drawing on the old definition of fell as cruel, savage, or ruthless. Historically, many, though not all Boltons, have been as cruel, savage, and ruthless as Shakespeare intended with the phrase. So Macbeth has just discovered that he's lost his wife and, and son, that they've been killed. So he's responding in one, he says, in one fell swoop, blah, blah, blah. Interesting to, con- to, to denote that the word fell because in, of course, in the North, winter fell. Certainly we don't associate that with cruel, savage, maybe a little bit of ruthlessness, but not cruel so much. So interesting, maybe the connotation back in the day might have been maybe the ancient Starks did have. Maybe they did deserve it back then. I mean, the ruthless part I can believe and the savage part I can kind of believe too. And depending on who you are, the cruel part could be. You know, it's something I want from technology that not too long ago would have just seemed crazy and silly, but now I think it's going to happen. I want to be able to control F all literature. <laughs> Whoa. You know what I mean? I want to like, I want all examples in literature of fell swoop. Wow. Like, if you get all the books online and the same Every database, book. I feel like well, we should be able to get there. there. Is, well, one interesting thing is that with like Google Books, for example, that is a purview of something like Google Books. They, they have even books that you can't, if you, you don't have access to, it'll still search them and come up with that clip. So that somewhat exists. It isn't quite as all-encompassing, but it's, it is pretty pretty good. And if you could get different filters on it, like we have a search of ice and fire and you can filter that by like a POV or book or whatever. Or if you could just have a search of Shakespeare or a search of 18th century literature or hmm. Dickens or whatever yeah, it is and you put different down. filters. and Yeah, because yeah, it anyway. would be a little bit limited by like translations and the phrase in other languages, like the phrase may not exist in other languages. I don't know. The closest thing. Yeah, I'll accept still, it with limitations. Yeah. Even if it was just <laughs> yeah. English or, or parsed by language. There's, there's, there's one, there, there's a certain search engine that I particularly like. I forget what it's called. I could, I could grab a link pretty quickly, but it's, it searches old books 
like specifically like very old and like not very popular books. Yeah, like like using the Google like books type engine, but it, it's specifically surfaces that. So you can search like, I, I don't know, you could search like bread. And instead of coming up with like a million standard results for bread, it shows you like an old newspaper from like the 1700s where they're talking about, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) it's a lot more esoteric and and unique and uh, dated. So kind of like that. That's Um, neat. Might be able to check for words that aren't used as often nowadays too. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, All right. So here's the first, that was the first mention in the world of Ice and Fire. Now here is the first mention in Song of Ice and Fire proper from Eddard 8. Game of Thrones. Mercy is never a mistake, Lord Rinley, Ed replied. And the trident, Sir Barristan here, cut down a dozen good men, Robert's friends and mine. When they brought him to us, grievously wounded and near death, Bruce Bolton urged us to cut his throat. But your brother said, I will not kill a man for loyalty, nor for fighting well, and sent his own maester to tend Sir Barristan's wounds. That, by the way, is the first mention of Bruce as well. So not just the first mention of Bolton, and it's noteworthy that the first mention of Bruce Bolton is suggesting the execution of Barristan the Bold. <laughs> and it's just kind of casually like, yes, yeah, let us throw it. The World of Ice and Fire app refers to this as an example of Bruce being a ruthless and implacable foe. It doesn't have to be that Bruce was being sadistic. That's possible that he was, but I mean, Barristan the Bold is a great warrior who was on the other side. He's like, we can't take any chances that that guy is our enemy. But yeah, sure, he's an honorable man, but he killed several of our of our guys on the battlefield just now. So, yeah, so maybe this isn't a great example of Bruce being evil. It maybe isn't evil at all, but it is directly in opposition to what Ned would have done. That is important. It's the opposite of what Ned wanted to do. It's no mercy versus pragmatism, political pragmatism. Like, some of, in other circumstances, I might agree with Bruce. Not, not with Barristan. I know Barristan. We've been exposed to this character. It's hard to erase what we already know about that guy. But if it was somebody else, I don't know. Maybe he'd have a good point. Like, we can't trust this guy. It's interesting, too, because this is commentary on Roos, but also on Ned yeah, and Robert. Absolutely. You know, it is sort of pragmatic for Roos to want to kill Barristan. Yeah. He's a potential threat. He's someone for people to rally around. But there's an argument, too. Like, maybe he becomes a martyr if you kill him and... There's arguments that we can win him over or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And And I think one thing that's interesting about this is the reasons that Robert has. We're thinking about different angles of like the nature of mercy or pragmatism, the implications where, but uh, Robert's reason is he doesn't want to punish someone for loyalty or for being a good warrior. And that kind of makes sense too. Maybe he was a traitor, but he didn't think he was a traitor. I don't want people loyal to me to be afraid for being punished. Anyway, it yeah. seems like a good policy that Robert I agree. has. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting too, like for, for, I definitely would disagree with Ned and Ned's a little angry when he says this because he's, he's mad at what Renly's even suggesting, but I would have to disagree that mercy is never a mistake. I don't know about never. <laughs> mercy can't yeah. be never. Yeah. But also Ned has also just experienced a few examples of mercy in his own life. Not, not I'm not even talking about the old ones like during the war or when he was younger, things with Liana. I'm talking about just sparing the direwolves. That was a mercy. But I think the important thing to focus on here in terms of this episode, in terms of our core topic here, is that right away, the Boltons and Starks are seen in opposition in terms of their values. And like you said, and that's what makes partly what makes it interesting. We're predisposed towards taking Ned's side. And, I, and we do take Ned's side. Even after talking about it, we would take Ned's side, I think. 
this is an example of evil here. Necessarily. I mean, maybe with Barristan it would be, but the general, like, you shouldn't just give mercy to people who just killed you, a bunch of your soldiers. I agree with your point about Robert having the right answer here, but it's not framed as good versus evil is what I'm saying, I guess. It's framed as yeah. better versus <laughs> compassionate you would expect, versus, yeah. Right, it's a, it's a Venn diagram, right? You would expect someone who is evil to have this no mercy mentality. Yes. But... It's not the only person that might have a no mercy mentality. That's a really good way to put it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Ned didn't show mercy to that, that kid from the wall when he chopped his head off, right? Mm. Like, if he says good mercy <laughs> is never a mistake, well, then shouldn't he have shown mercy there? Like, even I guess Ned, he didn't consider mercy an option there. Maybe the law trumps. But still, you're right, though. He, there wasn't, I mean, the mercy no was mercy making it quick. No mercy for traitors. I don't know. Yeah, no mercy for traitors. Yeah. <laughs> Except, yeah, yeah. like <laughs> unless they say they're sorry. But that is actually an interesting dichotomy that comes up a lot in Game of Thrones: is how do you deal with, how do you make peace with your enemies? It was like, like I'm supposed to kill my enemies. And Littlefinger had that great quip that it, I think is only in the show, and he's like, "We only make peace with our enemies." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Hmm, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if like. If Ned would feel like he could show mercy if someone had deserted his army, but because it was someone who was a deserter of the watch, of the wall, that he didn't really feel like it was necessarily his call to, to show him mercy. But it doesn't matter if it's his call if he thinks it's never a mistake. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, never, <laughs> I didn't even think of this when I brought it up, but I realized it's it's actually a good uh, a good hint at a dilemma that is going to be pervasive here, especially with Ned, is it? It's not always black and white. You can't just say never, blah, 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 blah. That there will be exceptions. And it maybe it's a flaw of Ned's to not think of it in this way, even though he should, even though he does. He does have this gray area within him, but he doesn't even realize it. And even he finds it room for their, anyway. That's yeah. why I pointed out that he's angry in this moment. He's specifically yes. it's not speaking clearly, like maybe. he's a little more harsh with his words. In a different frame of mind, he might have been like, yeah, well, sometimes mercy is wrong. Yeah, okay, I see your point. Like if he was, but he's arguing at that point. So he's just, he's digging his heels in. So (laughs) it isn't necessarily how he feels when it really comes down to it. Okay, so here's Bran 6, A Game of Thrones, first mention of the Dreadfort. The maester had taught him all the banners, the mailed fist of the Glovers, silver on scarlet, Lady Mormont's black bear, the hideous flayed man that went before Roose Bolton of Dreadfort, a bull moose for the Hornwoods, a battle axe for the Kerwins, three sentinel trees for the Tall Hearts, and the fearsome sigil of House Umber, a roaring giant in shattered chains. And soon enough, he learned the faces, too, when the lords and their sons and knights' retainer came to Winterfell to feast. Roos's face does end up being pretty notable because it's mostly because it's so ordinary and wouldn't look out of place elsewhere. I feel like Roos, other than maybe his eyes and his creepy voice, which isn't a physical, visual, visual trait, his voice, he would look normal. I think he would look kind of like a regular person in today's society. That's a, maybe, maybe other people would imagine him differently, but he, sh- he shaves and almost all Northerners have beards. He stands out in this regard as being different too, just in his appearance. He's not loud. A lot of Northerners are boisterous and especially like someone like Umber who's really loud. Ned's not loud, but most of the Northern Lords seem like they're clamoring. They're like, it's just the way they handle social situations, loudness. It's not, they don't have, they don't have indoor voices. (laughs) They don't have, (laughs) it's just everything is, yeah. 
But Roose Bolton's super the opposite. Like, soft, speaks so quietly that people have to be like, what's that guy saying? But they do want to hear what he's saying because it's probably important and he has some gravitas. He's dangerous. You, you want to know what the dangerous guy is saying? <laughs> do we know that Roose shaves or is he just unbearded? I don't because know. Yeah. I don't know if vampires grow hair. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> you might not need to shave. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> What's funny is it's also not real. I can't, I couldn't find, I didn't look super hard for it, but I couldn't find an example of whether Ramsey has a beard. I don't think Ramsey has a beard either. All the artwork has him beardless and I don't ever, I haven't ever seen him just a beard being described. So it's like we have two Boltons without beards and it's pretty much everyone has a beard. I like the idea that they are pretty hairless that they just it's not that he's shaving really it's just that he just doesn't really grow a beard like that's yeah. not like not every nor it makes sense to me that not all men grow a big beard yeah yeah absolutely which is why I think it's emphasized by both of them not having one he's like if it's just one person it's like okay well random person doesn't have a beard but then both of them it's like all right this is like a thing <laughs> so we already we've got these little you know, physical traits and manners of speaking already, little things that set them apart. Ned having a different attitude about mercy than Bolton. Already we're seeing the beginnings of these separations. Of course, by the end of the episode, there's going to be a lot more of these we'll have laid out. So I did a, a search on a search of Ice and Fire real quick for Bolton and shave. <laughs> and there's one result describing his face was clean shaved. But that's different from shaving. Being clean shaven <laughs> yeah, is the same. That's anyway. true. <laughs> Bolton shaving. You might have, uh, I'm a little wary of searching for that. I think with razors and <laughs> Boltons, like, yeah, I don't know. Like they don't they don't skin, they don't shave, they flay. Like he, every morning he wakes up and flays his face. <laughs> <laughs> just the top layer. He's really good with his sharp blade. They're very good at it. Yeah. You gotta no, it's just exfoliating. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they're <laughs> really exploiting. The Boltons, yes. The, in the far flung future, the Boltons are skincare, skincare corporation. <laughs> Our exfoliators are rough. <laughs> <laughs> Nina says, ah, even without Lewin's instruction, Brand probably would have remembered that Bolton sigil. Like some of those other ones, maybe you could forget, like the trees <laughs> or just like a bear. Like, maybe he likes bears, so he remembered that one, but that doesn't stand out. The skinned, the flayed man definitely stands again. So that stands out too in terms of their sigil. Like that really does. It really is like, what the? If you were to lay out all the sigils of the North, that one is one of the like wolf, bear, trees, merman. Flayed man, what? <laughs> like that is sad, is brutal. Lots you know, of differences. I, I, I think it might be somewhere else in a document. I think Nina brings up the idea that at some point each of these houses, like some person chose yeah, their sigil. Someone you picked know, I that. think that's a neat to think about. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Like some when the Andal era came along, all the northern houses, like, all right, we're not gonna be Andal. We're still taking our first, but the sigils and house words thing is cool. We'll adopt that. So yeah, some Bolton was like, this is what we're going to go with. (laughs) And you got to wonder how much of it is the person that was making this decision, or maybe it was even a panel, you know, some group decision, but how much of it was an attempt, you know, imagine it would be different in different houses and different scenarios, but how much was an attempt to capture their essence and their, their history and everything versus 
the one dude that's in charge right now, what he wanted. Or, or he just he wants liked. to intimidate. Yeah. This thing just sounds yeah. wrong to me about a council. When you say a Bolton and a council, it just doesn't sound right to me. I just yeah, figure yeah. like one guy making the decisions and everybody yeah. else. <laughs> now, this is also a function of us just not having a lot of Bolton history. There's a lot of missing Bolton history. Like there is on, on, like on all the houses. I mean, there's a ton of missing Stark history. Even the Targaryens, which are the most covered, have a have large gaps. So there, it's possible that there are decent Boltons that have lived out that they weren't decent enough to go, we should change our sigil. <laughs> but it's possible there were. On the other hand, George doesn't show us any of that. I think that's intentional. He's kind of maybe gone out of his way to not have positive, good Boltons. There's some that maybe are okay. There's, there's a hint or two that we'll get to in this episode that maybe there was some decency in there. But even that is questionable. Like, I can't think. You know, there's uh, no good deed of a Bolton. I can't name a single good deed. The, the yeah. victors write the history. Maybe the Starks wanted to brush the, the, the noble Boltons under the rug and mm. prop up. The, and maybe the Boltons embraced it. They're like, yeah, we are intimidating, aren't we? Yeah, yeah like the Tywin could. Lannister school of, yeah, fear is better than, it's better to be feared than loved. And they're going really far into it. Like, it's better to be, if, if it's good to be feared, for people to be afraid of us? What if they're just completely, utterly terrified of us because we're complete psychopaths? Like, what about that? Let's lean into that really far. Fear works. Let's go with a super ultra mega fear. On, on the other hand, the Tullys get fish. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not like, very scary. You know, uh, in, in the real world, color names, I know my last name is Pink. And a lot of times color names were assigned like to someone before everyone had last names. That, you know, for all of history, that wasn't like a typical thing. But as there's more people and more names being repeated and, and maybe your name might have been associated like with your plot of land or yeah. John of the, the Shire or something like that. Color names, at least some of them in some areas, were assigned based on people who had lost their land and you would just get assigned a name. And so pink was that scenario in like northern Scotland, Ireland, that, that area. Yeah. Anyway, I, I bring this up because I wonder if some houses, sigils were assigned. Someone just said, you're going to be fish. (laughs) (laughs) No, we want to be swords. No, 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 no. Some guy in some other job is Mr. Black. Fish don't have skin. You can't flay a fish. So maybe they're, or you can fillet a fish, but you can't (laughs) flay. Okay, never mind. This is getting out of hand. (laughs) Nina points out that there's a few other examples of like gruesome sigils, like the Manwoody crown skull, the Blackmont Vulture stealing a baby. That's the one I think example. of first always. I think that's yeah, the worst. That one's pretty nasty. It's pretty gnarly. The red flames of the Ullers, the hanged man of the trance, Marin Trance family is a, a hanged man. But that's still, I don't know, this, is, this seems worse. This seems more, a lot more violent and a lot more suggestive, a lot more terrifying because like hanging is, it can be slow if you, if you don't do it right. But if you do the drop, it's over pretty quick. Like flaying though. I mean, that can, you can, it takes days to die from that. And you can... Oh, Hanging's yeah. also a little more common, a little more yeah, standard. Yeah, that's true. It's, flame, it's, it's like, whoa. Like, yeah, yeah you right. can imagine some people maybe have never even heard of it and they find out about it like, what? You yeah, know, like that's a thing? Too. Oh my God. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't remember when I first heard of that when I was a child. But yeah, I probably was like, oh my Lord. So this was our section on first mentions. Speaking of first mentions... The first ever YouTube episode of History of Westeros podcast. Not the first ever episode of History of Westeros podcast, but the first one to appear on YouTube was on House Bolton. You might be like, I've never seen that. Yeah, that's because we don't have it up anymore. We took it down. It's not great quality. <laughs> We've <laughs> learned a lot since then. <laughs> also, it's, it was made before the world of ice and fire and before, which means and before fire and blood. It was December 2012. So <laughs> a, a few things have changed since then. 
All right, let's talk about Bolton rule, the areas that the Red Kings and House Bolton have both ruled and fought over, presumably, and certainly. In some cases, we'll be guessing, making educated guesses, other cases. It's pretty straightforward. We'll start with the Dreadfort itself. We don't know when it was built, probably a long, long, long time ago, possibly before the Long Night, possibly before Winterfell. It's not the same status it's in when it was built. It surely had some upgrades, downgrades, and then rebuildings and add-ons. So it's also probably not the original version of the place. So here's John describing it to Stannis in advance of Stannis' northern campaign. It is a strong castle, all of stone with thick walls and massive towers. With winter coming, you will find it well-provisioned. Centuries ago, House Bolton rose up against the king in the north, and Harlan Stark laid siege to the Dreadfort. It took him two years to starve them out. Two years. Long time. I really wish we had a footnote to that story. What did he do after he starved them out? Because obviously, the Dreadfort continued to exist. The Boltons continued to exist. So he didn't extirpate the house entirely. He probably he may have sent that current ruling Bolton to the wall or something like that and let their son take over or some uncle or some brother. Who knows? We do at least see a little bit of the dungeons the Selfion was in, and he noted that the steps leading out of it are really steep, kind of adds to the like creepy depth angle to it all. And of course, the, that whole thing was very creepy in the first place, that whole scene. Surely there's a godswood. I mean, it's the north. I'm going to make the case that the Boltons are, in a lot of ways, the anti-Northman's Northmen. We've already pointed to lots of differences between them and other characters, and we're going to build that case throughout. But I don't think they're so different that they don't even have a godswood with a heart tree. I don't think they're that different. Because I think if they're, they would want to, they want to pretend to be, they, they were part of the North, right? They wouldn't want to, they're not flagrantly pushing back against the North's values. They just do things differently. They execute them, pun intended, in a different manner. One that's more ruthless, brutal, cruel, <laughs> et cetera. They're werewoods like blood red already. <laughs> yeah, we've, probably, so we've seen some. <laughs> We've seen some really terrifying faces on Weirwoods. Yeah, the Bolton Heart tree is probably... Yeah. It probably doesn't have any bark. <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Can you flay a tree? <laughs> <laughs> By the end of this episode, we'll have joked about flaying everything. Like, yes, when the, when the first Boltons successfully took Winterfell, they really dropped the ball with their victory because they just tried to flay the castle. They're just like scraping away at the stone <laughs> ineffectually. Just... <laughs> That's I'll just show called them. cleaning. That's just cleaning. That <laughs> <laughs> would really take a oh while. God, I flay my kitchen every day. <laughs> <laughs> that's Bobby Flay, right? Isn't that where? Yeah, that's where he that, gets that it. That kitchen guy, yeah, that <laughs> chef guy, yeah. You can't don't play with your food, but you can flay with your food. <laughs> flay, don't play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nina says, I wonder if the Dread Ford has ever been taken in a full-out assault or even burned down or destroyed. We Winterfell has been now three times by the Boltons alone. We let alone maybe other people having had done it. John says it's difficult to take, but he didn't say like impossible. He didn't compare it to like Storm's End or Casterly Rock or something. And I wouldn't guess that it's at that level. But there are factors that make it perhaps even harder to take outside of the castle. Like the fact that it's in the north. A siege at Storm's End. A siege at Casterly Rock. Casterly Rock might hold out longer. Storm's End might hold out longer. But the winter effect 
on a siege. Like, it's really hard to maintain a siege in winter. If I was the Boltons, this is, this is what I would do. I would make my attack near the end of summer. So if it failed, they wouldn't be able to come besiege us because winter would be starting and it'd be really difficult for them to pull that off. Then winter would be like several years maybe. And then by that time, I'd be, I don't know, lots of things would have changed by then. So it kind of shows you some cleverness is built in. There's ways to make their castle even stronger based on the terrain, the, the region. It's also wooded, hilly. There's some evidence, maybe some swamps nearby. So the castle itself may not be as strong as Storm's End and Cashley Rock and, and these tough spots, but it might have some of the most difficult terrain around it. I think that's part of why John was telling that story too. Castanis has sort of a sense of urgency, mm, right? Yes, he's in and a so hurry. John is saying, look, a great house from the north assaulting this castle took two years. Yeah, winter so maybe, mm-hmm. you, right? Yeah, maybe you can do this but it's going to take a couple of years. You yeah. want to wait that long? Like, this isn't the way you want to go. And of course, the counter argument was at the time, was like, well, he doesn't have much of a garrison there. And he's like, well, even a small garrison is going to be able to do give you a lot of trouble. And he's like, yeah. yeah. Our, Maybe not two years, but six months. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so... A small garrison won't eat through as much food. You know, it's harder to seed, starve them out. And of course, as we learned later, it was a trap. Roos wanted to bait him into attacking the Dreadfort. So John was right to be wary, but for reasons he didn't consider. Now, Reek 1, A Dance with Dragons, gives us two separate quotes that give us a little more look at what the Dreadfort looks like. We don't get a lot, but we'll give you what we have. Out in the yard, night was settling over the Dreadfort, and a full moon was rising over the castle's eastern walls. Its pale light cast the shadows of the tall, triangular merlins across the frozen ground, a line of sharp, black teeth. So that's outside as they're walking towards the Great Hall. And now here's the side of the Great Hall. The Great Hall was dim and smoky. Rows of torches burned to left and right, grasped by skeletal human hands jutting from the walls. High overhead were wooden rafters, black from smoke, in a vaulted ceiling lost in shadow. I mean, skeleton hand candle holders. What? <laughs> we need that for Skelly Night at Ice and Firecon. Mm, that's <laughs> yeah. a good call. But we did that with humor in mind. We were laughing and ha this is fun. If it's like your earnest decorating choice, <laughs> like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is what it should be year round for thousands of years. Like, wow. So yeah, that's pretty scary. It sits on the upper portion of the Weeping Water, which is a river. It not Even their river sounds sad. <laughs> <laughs> this flows out into the Narrow Sea. So that's really important. They have access to world markets and have for some time, longer than Winterfell, it would seem, who are landlocked. The main feature of, the, of Winterfell is they're, they're next to the Wolfswood. That's the, the sea they're next to is a big forest. Whereas the Boltons are not on the water but they have that access because they're on a river that directly leads to the Narrow Sea, which is where all the free cities are. And you could sail to Ashai and all these other places. So they have access to these markets in a way that the Starks didn't, which I think maybe adds a little bit to the, uh, the anti-Northman's Northman arrangement that we're trying to paint here as a, as a portrait of the Boltons. Uh, and that also... the reverse of that is maybe the Starks have a stronger connection to the old gods. I feel like the Starks have a stronger connection to the old gods. And maybe this is part of that. The Starks are central in the north, whereas the Boltons are towards the east, closer to a lot of other civilizations. Not close necessarily, but closer. 
that stuff trickles in. Maybe it affects them. Who knows? But overall, it is a very dense region that goes a long way towards explaining why they've never been killed off by the Starks or someone else. It's not, it might have seemed odd that the Boltons have survived this long, but this is one of the things that has been a big part of keeping them alive for a long time. As well as the power, like being having access to those world markets, having goods and services that maybe other Northerners don't have access to. Maybe that gives them an advantage. Maybe that allows them to make a larger profit. They can sell like things like amber and trees and like the, the big timber and the hides of bears and wolves and things like that. There's a decent demand for that in world markets and they would have better access to getting maximum value. The woods near Winterfell, are there a lot of werewoods there? Have they been harvested out or were they preserved or we it's, have an idea? It's not really said, but we know that there wasn't a lot of tree, werewood cutting in the north and even in those days because the Andals never, there was never a second wave of tree cutting because the first men did, did that all for a while, all over. The children put a stop to that. The pack happened. They agreed to stop. Then the Andals came and the Andals weren't bound by that. So they started cutting trees down again. But the Andals never really went to the north, right? So it's not explicitly shown to us that there's a bunch of werewoods in the Wolfswood, but I would 99% chance say there are. For example, at one point on the Fist of the First Men, which is not the Wolfswood, to be clear. That's beyond the wall. John is up there and he's looking. He's got a high vantage point because he's up on this hill and he can see the forest. And he definitely sees werewoods here and there. He's like, oh, there's, he's like, he's like, you see pines and oaks and this. And he's like, every once in a while, and, and, and spotted here and there, there's a little bit of red to indicate a werewolf. So I, I have to think the, the wolf's wood is the same. I, I can't think of why it wouldn't be because of the lack of andals and, and all that. I'm just thinking about it. That might be what keeps them closer to the old gods uh, if there's more werewoods around them. If okay. there's not as much of a forest around the Dreadfort. Yeah, there is a forest. I mean, there's Hornwood Forest separates House Hornwood from House Bolton as best as we can tell. And there's probably werewoods in there because there's probably all over okay. the North. Hornwoods, uh, of course, really early on in, in a Clash of Kings, we have this horrible situation with the Hornwood, Lady Hornwood and, and Ramsay Bolton. So probably not the first Hornwood that's been abused by Bolton. The, they're the closest large castle there. So anyway, the last river is a major river in the North. It's probably secondary to the White Knife. And that's the one that the Umbers sit on. Umbers are near the headwaters of the last river, but it flows all the way down into the narrow sea as well. And until Carhold existed, and Carhold didn't exist in ancient times, Carhold maybe only existed a thousand years or so, Bolton could control the mouth of the last river as well. That would give them substantial power. They could control the weeping water. They could control a large portion, the important part of the second biggest river, in the north, and there wasn't a white harbor either, so there wasn't really anyone exercising full control over the white knife either. The Boltons basically could, at different times in history, push their hegemony, their control, maybe hegemony is not the right word, push their dominance over three different major rivers in the north, all on the east coast. And, well, you can just imagine that would make them extremely powerful and able to dictate to a lot of lesser houses taxes, call up a lot of soldiers when the time comes. I think some people wonder what makes the Boltons powerful. What is it about them that has them second place in the North to the Starks? It's things like this. Now, some of this power they've lost over the centuries, but it's still there. And these, the, ge the geography hasn't changed much. They're still close to these things, even if they don't have the same control that they used to. 
So they could potentially seize that, take it back, or who knows what Rus's plans are, right? If he if he ever becomes king, which I don't think he will, but it's suggested he might want to. These are the kind of things, these kind of decisions he would make to a kind of situations he would look at in order to ensure his own power grows and stays. So there's hills to the north, lonely hills, kind of like Lonely Mountain of Lord of the Rings fame. And the Dreadfort is likely situated in those hills, like maybe on top of one of these hills or partly contained. I doubt it's on fully flat ground. It's not entirely clear, but the hills would make, it would make sense to, to use the hills as extra defensive measure or prominence. The control, Nina notes that the control of the Hornwood Forest might have made the Bolton Kings even more of an even match for the Starks because that's also an economic value, right? The, the trees, the timber, we, we've mentioned that several times, how that's a really valuable thing to be able to ship and sell out in the world market. For boats and for just everything. used to build infrastructure of your own yeah. territory. The houses get built out of trees, burnt for firewood, and so on. That's true. We're even, I mean, even now, it's only in now in modern times that we're starting to move away from wood. And by we, I mean some people. There's still lots of wood in the world being used for building, but there's there's movements away from that. But in this scenario, stone and wood is pretty much it. A little bit of iron and bronze here and there, but that's mostly just for like fasteners and gates and things like that, doorknobs locks, not not the walls and the the main structures. That would have been another advantage that the Boltons would have had too, being able to move timber along the rivers. They could yes. transport it farther. You just so then, drop the tree in the water and it floats down and you scoop it back up out yeah. there. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. In fact, that's what Sir Roderick tells the Umbers to do. He tells them to work with the Manderleys in that exact regard. He's like, all right, you guys have the timbers. Cut them down, send them down river. The Manderleys will pick that up, turn them into ships for King Rob. And they're like, we don't want to work with the Mandalays. He's like, but you will. He's like, yeah, we will. <laughs> uh, there's also Long Lake, the biggest lake in the north, very important, kind of central. If you were to take a look at the map of the north at any point, either here, Ashea's got one for us, you can see that the region, the southeastern, the eastern and southeastern region of the north is its own thing. Like the rivers lock it in. There's like the White Knife, kind of cuts, bisects the central lower part there. And then the last river creates kind of the top. And then the hills and Long Lake form sort of another border to connect in between them. So really, I could see the Red Kingdom at its maximum being, and it could have been even bigger than this. Maybe, they, who knows if they ever conquered the Umbers or brought the Umbers under their sway for a little while or, or something like that. But assuming that something like that didn't happen, or at least ignoring that possibility for now, all the way to the south bank of the last river. Like they would control the southern side and the, maybe the Umbers would control the other side. All the way east to the Gray Cliffs, which is a lot of shoreline on the east coast there. This, given the lack of Carhold. Once Carhold was built, they wouldn't have been able to do that so easily. But there'd be no one to compete with in this prior era. And then west to Long Lake and the White Knife, all this area that they would be the dominant power for. Cross the river and you're in Stark territory. Now, now it's all Stark territory. <laughs> but back then, it was disputed. And it may have been considered de facto Bolton territory in a lot of different sub-eras because they would have been closer and, more, and, and had exercised more of their direct dominance over it. That's another thing that might lend to their position, their power, and, and to the course of history. These natural barriers that yeah. they don't have to worry about invaders crossing these rivers if they can just control a few key points, bridges or whatever 
they can much better spend their defensive resources when there are these natural barriers. That's a great point. Yeah. And really, this the southeastern, the, the extreme southeast of the north, where White Harbor is now, the mouth of the of the of, of the White Knife, and a little bit east of that, where there's Old Castle and Widow's Watch. It feels to me like that was the disputed lands of the north. We're talking about the disputed lands, which is in essence a place where Mir and Tyros and Lease have fought a lot, and a lot of sellsword companies have been born and spent their half their careers there. Now, this is no longer a disputed area, but I feel like in ancient times, this would have would have been where the Red Kings and Kings of Winter would have frequently clashed. This is the area that neither of them controlled. The last area of the North that, as far as I know, that anyone laid claim to. And I think that's part of why White Harbor was eventually built, because it was this chaos, this back and forth, this region that people kept fighting over. And finally, the Manderleys brought it some stability. Speaking of, let's talk about rivalries. Who were the Bolton's enemies? Who did they fight with? Who were their allies? Anything like that? Of course, it starts with the the most obvious, the most clear-cut rival of all. The enmity between the Starks and Boltons went back to the long night itself, it is claimed. The wars between these two ancient families were legion, and not all ended in victory for House Stark. Makes it sound as if their rivalry existed during the long night. Maybe, or even before it, back to not before, doesn't say before the long night, although history being what it is, they wouldn't necessarily know if it predated that. But that's a really, really long rivalry. I mean, yeah. Hmm. This is reminding me of something I wanted to ask about. We're calling this episode The Red Kings. Yeah. We're covering the Boltons, the Norse, kind of in general. Yeah. Let me ask are the Red Kings, are there like, Seven Red Kings from this date to this date, or is it a general term to Bolton leaders? Yeah. Bolton leaders of the past, like would would is Roos? I mean, I guess it's clearly not a Red King, but is he a Red Lord? Do they call the? They don't really call them that anymore. Yeah, the Red is gone from the the title, but that was their nickname. I don't know if they called themselves that. It's not clear, but there have been several Red Kings, a few that will will name directly, kind of like Storm Kings or the Lion Kings or. It's just a nickname for them. The Barrow Kings would be the uh, Kings of Winter. You think the Redfords were ever kings? And we're like, hey, we're the Red Kings. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> we were the real Red King. Maybe they, uh, I wondered about whether Maybe there they were the a, Dread Kings. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there was some ancient family connection between those two houses too. You never know, right? Actually, I have a little note on that later. Uh, a related note on that anyway. So there's other kings, kings of the winter in the middle, like we said. They're from the perspective of the Dread Fort, that's west, but you have to cross the White Knife to get there, so there's a pretty substantial barrier between them. Umber kings to the north, last hearth, last river. Glover kings to the west, northwest. That's all the way on the other side of the north, near Bear Island, but on the mainland. It's pretty far. I would guess they didn't have a lot to do with them, but surely they had something to do with them. Allies here and there, maybe some marriages. Marsh kings in the neck and the moat. The Marsh kings, of course, were mostly staying home. They didn't venture out very often, but they did ally with other kings, especially when it was to fight the Andals who were coming through. The Barrow kings as well, who we just mentioned of Barrowton, surely had some back and forth with the Boltons here and there, but Winterfell's between them, north and in between them, but still the domains of Winterfell would generally be 
in between those two, and thus they may not have done a lot of fighting, but they're players in the same region. There has to be trade and politics and relationships still. Skagos, the Isle of Skagos, very interesting, a lot closer to, say, House Umber than House Bolton, but a lot closer to the Boltons than the Starks, for example, and the Skags were, took a long time for them to bend the knee to the Starks. My guess is that this, given this lengthy history we're dealing with, sometimes the Skags were enemies of the Boltons, sometimes they were allies, they may have been allies of convenience where it wasn't really friendly, but a case of your enemy, the enemy of the enemy is my friend, that kind of thing. Isn't Skagos, aren't there supposed cannibals there? Oh, Am yeah. I thinking of the right? Yes, you are correct. Cannibalism might not be, once you flay a person or if you're going to eat a person, I wonder if it <laughs> might be an offshoot of, of Boltons. Yeah, uh, yeah, I bet yeah. there's some tie between them of some sort at some point. Could be, could be. And I'd be like, yeah, you, y'all are, what y'all are going to do with that skin? <laughs> <laughs> y'all be done with that? <laughs> <laughs> So Hornwood, as I said, nearest non-kingly house due to the south. Some mountain clans are probably nearby too. Now, it's probably been a lot of, probably been all range of outcomes and scenarios with the mountain clans. Some of them allying with the Boltons. Some of them seeing them as enemies. Some of them like, those guys are creepy. Some of them like, let's be on their side so that, yeah, they're creepy, but we don't want them as enemies, that kind of thing. Before White Harbor, there was the Wolf's Den. And one of the reasons I call that the disputed lands of the north is that I think it's the area that's changed hands the most in the north, as far as we can tell. It doesn't ever have an, it doesn't ever seem to have been autonomous, except in maybe extremely ancient times, and even that isn't certain, and it would have only been like little small slices of that region. Like the locks of Old Castle, they were kings. But Old Castle has never been very powerful, and it's, it's like on the tip of this peninsula. And it doesn't seem like they ever extended their power inland very much. Same with Widow's Watch. They're on that extreme like tip of land that sticks out into the narrow sea. And it seems like they just kind of, it's like a, like a miniature Florida. And it seems like they never really left it. <laughs> uh, so that is the region, the immediate surrounding region and territory. And it does really, I really enjoyed going through that when I was doing this collecting these notes and, and writing this stuff down, just realizing that how beneficial their portion of the North is to explaining their position of power, their ability to have so many soldiers and to have seemingly large amounts of wealth. I never really, I always kind of wondered where it came from, but laying all this out really makes sense. It's, it's another example of George having not just thrown stuff down onto a map. He, he thought about where it was, what the natural resources nearby, what the differing powers would do to each other over the long term and how that might play out, giving us a general idea. And it, it all feels realistic. It really tells me you shouldn't hate the flair. You should hate the game <laughs> of Thrones. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so good. I, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hate the keep hating the flair. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been thinking about it a little bit. I've just been immersed in Better Call Saul lately and just listening to interviews with the, the writers and showrunners of that show. It made me also think about George and how he's writing and the idea that uh, I think good writing and deep writing with well-built worlds, you, and especially with George's gardening style, you have to follow what you've created, right? Like if you want it to be good, you need to make sure the characters make decisions that are in line with what's been established. Mm. You don't want them to do something that's 
dumb or if it is dumb, it, that has to be a dumb character. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I wonder sometimes how much, one, it makes sense why the story has gotten so complicated for George. Like that's, that's another thing too. Bob Odenkirk said that he actually prefers as an actor to not have been involved in the writing because when you're writing, a lot of times you go down certain paths that you abandon. Right. There's like a lot of ways something could play out and you kind of have to pick. But your subconscious one, is still like. Makes, right. But as an actor, he would be too caught up in like, what, what if it was this way or how it could have gone? And he has to kind of like just shed that. It's, and that's a tough thing. To turn to his imagination off. Right. But with that thought of mine, I'm putting myself in the shoes of George and how long it's taken to write, like how many paths he's gone down and he had to backtrack from because it didn't add up with something else yeah. and, and at new ideas that might have been sparked for something else and created a new path. And, all this I'm saying because I wonder if there's, there's this sort of feeding loop that he has this idea for a, a kingdom and a lord and how, how they're a player. And then eventually that's put onto a map. But then on the map, he realizes, well, they are close to them. There would be a conflict. So then that makes a new story arise. Yeah, yeah. But then within this conflict, well, if there's a river there, they would have more resources. So they would win. The, I can see how the... It well, would just get overwhelmed. The map would affect the story, here, and the story would affect the map. I don't know. This is what we're, I think, about to bring up, but it's a perfect segue. Yeah, you segue. Really um, well there. <laughs> I don't know if you have seen the news that our friends at Game of Owns, Zach and Hannah, interviewed George R. R. Martin on their podcast this week. It's, I did. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm so excited. It's two hours and 14 minutes. And let me say, he very much addresses what you're talking about right he there. Does. Like spot okay. on what you're talking about, giving some very concrete details that are really interesting about, for example, him trying to make a, that that certain uh, Tyrion Dance with Dragons chapter that we've talked about. He tried a lot of different ways to make it work and it just... It just didn't work with where the story was going. And that was disappointing to him to not be yeah. able to use it, but he had to come to terms with it. But it was a really good interview. There are a lot of good highlights. So we don't want to spoil it all for you. Yeah, but... y'all should definitely check it out. Shay and I have gone through it. It's really good. George, they just give George space to talk. He just goes off. He's very relaxed and gets deeper into a lot of topics, like some familiar topics that he goes farther with. That Maybe you've heard him talk about this before, but not in this level of detail, not with this much energy. Like he, he commented at one point on how, like a lot of times these interviews end up, they take sound bites and blow them off all over the internet. And that's like, it feels like that's half the reason they're there in the first place, is they're looking for something they can go viral Stir with. controversy. Yeah, they want to yeah. like, they want to, they want to like, fully capitalize on the fact that they got an interview with George and get it like as much exposure and clout for it as possible. Whereas Game of Bones is treating it like a nice conversation. Like yeah. A chance to really get in his head and to let him be himself. And so that's that's fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I was hesitant to bring it up because I hadn't actually listened to it yet. And I <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to listen to it. and so excited that, that Zach and Hannah got to do it. But, uh, but, but yeah, I, I did read his most recent blog post and he said something to the effect in there when he was talking about it. He's like, this is really hard, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Gilligan and Peter Gould say that about Better Call Saul too. Like, this is really hard. It's really yeah. hard to tie everything together properly and to be true to the characters and to have the story come to logical conclusions and so on. And I, I, I really have an, an appreciation for how well they do it. I get frustrated when I watch certain media, movie, TV shows. Even when overall I might like it, I might be like, eh, I don't know about that part there. But I don't always know how I would have done it better. I respect the, the challenge of it. And that's extra frustrating is when I feel like I could have come up with something better. I'm like, man, you guys didn't pay a lot of money. You should have done better. <laughs> yeah. 
That's a great point. Yeah, so ho- y'all definitely go out and listen to Game of Owns interview with George R. R. Martin if you haven't already. And uh, tell him History of Westeros sent you. All right, a couple of questions from y'all. Then we'll get back to our Bolton lore, our Red King action. We haven't even mentioned a single Red King by name yet, but that's coming. It is indeed coming. Pulled Pork Sandwich says, Barbara Bolton wanted Aegon III to send food to the north. That's true. She did say that. And this is an example of a Bolton who might be a good person. On the other hand, what was the context for this? Remember that when Aegon III was unmarried, they had this whole thing. They, the nickname for it was the Maiden's Day Cattle Show or something like that, and where all these different houses presented their daughters. Boltons were among them. Barbara Bolton comes to try to marry Aegon III, and of course, he goes with Daenerys Valarian, and Barbara says, well, if you're not going to marry me, it's cold in the north, maybe send some food for the people. This is seen as, yeah, like that's a good deed, right? Or, I mean, or is it? These are just words. See, my cynical Bolton alarm goes off here. Maybe she is a good person. Maybe it's only the Bolton men, like the Simpsons. <laughs> where, if y'all remember where yeah. Lisa is lamenting that when she knows she's going to get stupid when she come, turns older, because that's what happens to all the Simpsons. And then her mother's like, no, actually, it's only the Simpson men that turn stupid. And then she brings all this family, there's a family reunion, and there's all these really accomplished, intelligent Simpson women, and the men are putting on frying pans and running into each other to colliding with each other's heads. And so that's that's what came to mind for me here. It's like, well, maybe the Bolton women aren't so bad because they're being groomed to be married out and live somewhere else. So you don't want to like send your psychopath daughter to live somewhere else. That's not going to reflect well on your family. So maybe they cordon that off. But maybe also this is just, this is just words, right? Words are wind. She didn't give, we didn't see her give any food to any starving people. She just, as far as I'm concerned, this could be a good deed, but it could also just be like, I got a chance to score some free grub here. <laughs> yeah. King might just she feel might have bad. taken that food back to her family and her castle, exactly. and not the people of the land. Or she might have sold the food to the yeah. people of the I'm land. I'm not even saying whatever, that's yeah. more likely, but just that she asked for food is. N- we don't know where that food went. We don't even know that. I don't even know that Aegon gave her the food. <laughs> he probably yeah. did because that's kind of the guy. He kind of guy he was. Still. Let's not assume. <laughs> it's like the her father was like, if you don't bring back, if you don't marry the king, get some food. <laughs> get something. <laughs> get some value out of this trip. I want to recoup the cost of sending you down there. That dress costs a lot of money. Get some. <laughs> it would be an awesome scene to see. Like, I wonder if like, if there's sort of this procession of like, all right, next, all right, next, next. And if she got to see the other contenders in line. Yeah. And when they were rejected, like, well, can I get a, a silver medallion? Can I get a new yeah. horse? No, get out of here. No, get out. <laughs> She's already like, I gotta get something out of Please, this. Please, <laughs> sir, may I have another one? All right, fine. We'll give you some food. She might have read the room well. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> Liet Rubenfeld says, the flayed man is probably a reaction to skin changing. Thinking about the Vermeer six skins prologue, it's terrifying on both sides. Very good catch, Liet. I have a lot of notes on this one. Unlike pulled pork sandwich, who also referred to something that we have notes on later. That one's a shorter topic. This one we have a lot of notes on. So we'll get to that in good time. But I'm glad you caught that because I don't want to be one of the only ones who have thought of that. I'm sure I'm not. But it's it's validating to have other people think of that same thing. Also, from longtime listener AJ, he pointed out something that I had forgotten. Remember we were joking last week about how a volcano just blowing everything up would be a real weak way to just resolve a plot like a plot that you can't, author can't figure out what to do, so he just blows it all up. George did joke about doing that with an April f- 
first April Fool's blog post. It's like, I'm just yeah. going to have the volcano blow everything up. I can't remember what the exact text was. I, would, I, I, I sort of intended to go look for that blog post, but I forgot. So anyway, AJ wanted us to share that and point that at you and be like, yeah, he did that. <laughs> so, well, maybe you have to go look that up. Good catch, AJ. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. On theory, is pretty wild. It's the one that refers to Bruce Bolton being an immortal vampire that just keeps changing his face to stay alive. And it, it seems to be a different person, but it's actually the same person. I don't think that's the case because, well, it just seems too outlandish, too fantastical for me. But it's rooted in things that do exist in A Song of Ice and Fire, not vampires necessarily. The idea that you're wearing someone else's face we see that. Like, Arya does that. The faceless men do have a room of faces that can be worn. And there's magic involved and all that. And then Rob in Game of Thrones, early on, he's like, those Boltons, they have that hidden chamber filled with skins. You're like, that, that's just an old story. But there really is one of these in the House of Black and White. So, like, the idea that the Boltons did or do have one is, like, it's not far-fetched. I don't conclude immortal vampire from that. But I do conclude... Huh. It's more of this magical overlap stuff, isn't it, Sean? A little different version of it, though. Do the, do the faceless men need to shave? <laughs> They're the flaceless man in the Dreadfort. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it's tempting to ascribe supernatural aspects to the Boltons. But I think what George is showing us is this is just pure human evil. I think it's a more powerful statement that they're completely unsupernatural. This is just... This kind of evil does exist in the real world. This can and does happen. And in, the, in medieval times, in the Dark Ages, and all over the real world, lords did stuff like this. I mean, not for 8,000 years, but they did it, right? I mean, it, it was a smaller scale, shorter periods of time, maybe. But yeah, they're not Veramir, like Liet pointed out, that comparison to skin changing. They're not, they're not enabled via supernatural power. They're not tempted by powers other people don't have. They have political and military power. That's the relatable standard evil. That's the kind of common form evil. Maybe psychopaths aren't common, but maybe, but they kind of are. I think in the modern world, they, psychopaths know they have to keep most of their behavior under wraps, but the Boltons don't have to because <laughs> they have enough power to insulate themselves from it, from the consequences. Dracula wasn't real, but Vlad the Impaler was real. Oh, yeah. And that guy, right? was, like, that guy <laughs> was nasty. <laughs> that guy was gnarly. And I don't know if one in X, if one in a thousand people are psychopaths, eventually there's going to be a thousand rulers. Yeah. One of them's going to be a psychopath. And yeah. I'm actually really glad you brought up Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Tepes, because part of the reason he was so nasty, part of the reason he was so cruel and brutal was because they, his realm faced constant invasion by the Turks. And the Turks would do evil stuff to his population, to the Romanians. So he, a lot of this like impaling and flaying and cruelty was to keep the Turks out. It's like, you come here and this is what's going to happen to you. Of course, that always escalates, right? (laughs) Just then they would do that to him and he did that, yeah. But still, that's relatable in that it's real world evil. It's 
No doubt it's evil, but it's the kind of evil that we've seen in the real world countless times. It's historical evil rather than controlling animals through magic. I mean, that's, that's cool, but it's not real. <laughs> and that's, so that makes it more of an interesting real... In a way, that makes them more terrifying. This is something you could see in the real world. Maybe not exactly like this. Like, they're not going to have their own castle now. But in like a thousand years ago, uh, yeah, Vlad the Impaler. Or, uh, and so now they might have their own mansion or skyscraper or whatever. Yeah. And they're just smarter about keeping it quiet. Their like, own island. They know that they can't do that out in public or they know they need to keep that quiet or nothing to bring the police or the authorities down on them or anything like that. And you see this as learned behavior. We don't see Roos raise Ramsey, but we see them interact. You see, wow, this is a terrible father, this kid. But also, he, this kid was probably awful anyway. Like He may have been born with some of this in him, maybe. But probably most of it was learned because that is the, the overwhelming science on that is it's almost, it's, it's learned behavior. It's not inborn. Very occasionally it is, apparently. And we see that with little Walder. We see the cycle playing out in little snippets. We see the adult Ramsey implication being that he was abused by his mother and by Roos and probably by all these other people in between. It's an abusive society. And not to not to justify him, obviously, but just saying that's that's probably what his upbringing was like. And then these younger kids, little Walder's what, 10 years old? The more time he spends around Ramsey, the more time he's, he, he is like him. Theon is noticing this. And the other Walder isn't taking to it. He's like, I'm not really, I don't really want to do this. But he still has to go along with it because he's a kid and the adults, he's got to do what the adults are doing. That's a really powerful statement, too, about how evil is transmitted in this world. It's just taught. Those kids spending time around Ramsey are becoming evil. Very normal. It. You're reminding me of Jojo Rabbit. It was really disturbing mm. in that movie to see the kids being indoctrinated into the Nazi party. Yeah. It's really like scary to think about. Yeah, because it's otherwise he's like a nice little kid. Yeah. He doesn't know this stuff is wrong. The adults are telling him it's right. How is he supposed to know better? Yeah. Exactly. So that is, I think, in a lot of ways, yeah. I think that maybe what George is going for here is the real, the realism of this is what makes it more terrifying. Maybe the eyes, their eyes, Roos's eyes are really creepy, and maybe that's just a little, maybe that's a little, a little extra evidence for the supernatural, and maybe it is, but it doesn't give them any powers necessarily. Just like some marker from a, a bygone era when eye color had some meaning in the genetic, the genetics have kept it going. The magical, the magical element to that genetical thing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying Genetical? to say here. It just keeps it, has kept it in play for so long. That's why so many houses have had eye colors that have persisted for thousands of years. So maybe this is part of that. It could also be that George just wants to evoke the imagery of vampires or Dracula or evilness and darkness. And also maybe he's keeping that path open. Like if he wanted it, this is a fantastic world. Yeah. So if he did decide to garden in that direction, he's laid the groundwork so screw it, they're vampires. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, also, you know <laughs> I will say George talks a little bit about vampires in the in the interview with uh, Game of Thrones, just a little bit. <laughs> the interview with the vampires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nina agrees with you there, Sean. She says it's it's not necessarily they're literal vampires, just these drawing on the same source of inspiration. The same things that make vampires terrifying are some of the things that are in play here. Vampires don't own the reasons that make them terrifying, right? A pale, in Fever Dream, she points out the chief antagonist is a pale, sadistic vampire with ice-colored eyes, eh, who literally believes his race is superior and treats the human race as cattle, right? And that's how Roos treats commoners. He, he, he doesn't see himself as a race apart from commoners, but he's a higher social class 
that may as well be another race. We've talked before about how the nobles in Westeros and in the real world back have, they're like, it's like a demigod status. You really are in a different legal situation, a different everything situation. Uh, yeah, so if, Nina says, if George wanted a villain who demonstrated the same sort of sadistic, cruel enforcement of a similar, similar world order, which he clearly did for Roos, and it's not surprising that he may have based Roos on this character from Fever Dream. Fever Dream's a great book, by the way. I read it a long time ago. I think the character is Joshua, is the vampire in that one. Uh, but it's been a minute for me. Roos tells Ramsay, a peaceful land, a quiet people. It's another vampire, vampire type thing, right? Like, Count Dracula was always like, keep the people quiet, keep them, don't want them talking, you don't want any attention drawn to the fact that I don't want anything that leads to people figuring out what, what's really going on or what I really am. Makes sense. You got to protect his secret. You need layers of secrecy to protect that deep, dark secret. That is the same energy, the same seeing of those layers is what people are like, what's behind all those layers is, is a vampire. They see the same layers and maybe assume the same thing is behind it all. While a peaceful land of quiet people was perhaps not necessary when the Red Kings were at their full power. It is implied that Roos learned this from his father. I mean, it's like a family tradition that they have ruled by this keep it under wraps sort of thing. Like the, the, the mafia does that, like keep it all quiet, right? The, what's their code of silence called? Omerta. It's just a good business practice. If you're in the business of evil... <laughs> There's not a whole lot of reason to flaunt it. You can get just as much terror out of just scaring a few specific people than you can by just traipsing around with your flayed man banner, right? Roost terrifies people. And no, like the Northerners, have we actually seen him flay someone? Did he do that in the past? I don't think. But everybody believes him fully capable. I believe him fully capable, but I definitely believe him fully capable of it. But it just goes to show that just the idea is what's terrifying. He doesn't even necessarily have to do it. And his ancestors did it. And he just has to remind everyone that he came from that, that he comes from that same family. Now, Roos maybe isn't the best example of that because he we we have seen him do awful stuff. Not not flaying, but hanging people that he made work for him, just all sorts of other cruelties. Past Boltons who maybe weren't up to snuff or they maybe just weren't evil enough. They maybe they could they could just pretend. They could cloak themselves in the skins of their ancestors <laughs> and show that that would be sufficient to be like, well, we're not taking any chances. He's just as evil as those guys. My mind is spinning on a lot of examples of how a leader might want to establish a precedent of being ruthless, right? That there's sort of an injustifies means. Like, I don't, I don't want trouble. I want peace. Peace or greater firepower. Security, kind of especially if you're prioritizing peace and stability security over liberty or happiness or some other value, which Roos might be doing here, a peaceful land and quiet people. And I'm thinking of like the Dread Pirate Roberts and the Princess Bride. Yeah. Like, well, you let one prisoner go and then it's work, work, work. <laughs> and then yeah. you kind of have to like make a point of it. And then maybe you don't have to do it as much. Like Rob, I don't think he really wanted to chop off Karstark's head. Yeah, he kind of knew to. he had yeah. to do it to establish order, his authority or whatever. I think about the Gene Hackman and Unforgiven, the sheriff, that mm. he was, he, he seemed to genuinely want his town to be a good, safe place, but he was maybe a little too authoritarian when someone 
did something that he didn't like, he was too severe, but he was trying to set a precedent to stop anyone from even going near that. Yeah. I, I could see on some level that's Roos's intense. You know, now we get to see all these other evil things, kind of like the Venn diagram I was talking about before. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times what might be okay is also associated with, with what is definitely not okay. It's, it's a slippery slope. That's where we get that term from. You know? And do you wonder where did this come from? Maybe like, like Vlad Tepe's, some of his cruelty was to keep the Turks away. How much of the Bolton's cruelty was keeping skin changers away, keeping the evil elements of the old gods away, keeping the Andals away? But some of it was probably just gonna, keeping the Hornwoods away or keeping the Starks away. If you're going to string the entrails up from a weirwood tree, well, hey, we're going to skin the <laughs> yeah, right, like, prisoners alive. That's a know, great yeah. point, too, which we, we had that later in the episode. May as well talk about it now. Yeah, if you're going to think, if you're going to hear that the North was hanging entrails and trees 500 years ago, and, and even Bolton's like, who knows what the heck, only the where, where heart trees know half of what goes on in Skagos, where you mentioned cannibalism, right? Which is pretty heinous. Right, yeah. Then, yeah, maybe by comparing the Venn diagram, maybe it's not that the, this doesn't rehabilitate the Boltons, but maybe make the rest of the North look le- more, like a little more like them by comparison. So maybe the Boltons are, maybe it's the whole North is actually <laughs> nastier than we thought. The Boltons are just the tip of the spear. But the rest of the North is that shaft. They're stabbing like they helped forge that spearhead in a way. So let's keep going because the farther we go in this, the more these things we throw some clouds on some of these ideas. Some of these ideas aren't as clear as they might have been, but it also makes it more interesting. Makes it more human. Yeah, the seam is going to pop up a few times. The whole idea that well, we just don't know a lot about the Boltons. Yeah, maybe... Maybe there's some good stuff that's been left out, but maybe they're just really good at concealing their evil. I lean more that way. <laughs> that they've got a lot of practice in hiding the worst. Like again, the mafia. The mafia is really good. At, they've existed for so long, right? The mafia still exists. For like, they've existed. People don't even know when they started, but it's a thousand years or so or something similar to it existed that long ago. It hasn't been wiped out. Like when you think about things like that, it's like, yeah, no wonder the Boltons aren't gone. You got... These people are really good at concealing their criminal activities. The Mexican mafia, the the cartels, like these people are, just think of that. We think of the Boltons, I think of that. Except they're lords instead of a cartel. Instead of criminal organization, they're a criminal political organization. Or I don't, I don't you know, know how to frame it properly, but it, you get what I mean. I don't want to get too, uh, I don't know, controversial or political here or whatever. But just if you think about, I don't know, the CIA. Sure. We know the CIA has done all kinds of dark, bad stuff. True. 50-ish years ago. Throughout the, do we really think they're not doing anything now? Yeah. Suddenly the CIA is that, totally on the yeah, up and up. Point. They didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Like, they're just hiding it well. <laughs> yeah, same. I mean, the same thing was the Boltons. It's like the Boltons were supposedly, they gave up the practice. The Starks made them bend the knee the second time. They had to give up the practice of flaying. They didn't give up the practice of flaying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they just like, did the practice check? of flaying. Was there some Stark, like, compliance officer searching the <laughs> castle? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and going back to the whole like peace through strength idea. Like, what was it? Was it Roosevelt who said, walk softly and carry a big stick? The Boltons are walk softly and carry a flaying knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but a peaceful land, a quiet people. That's what he's saying. Like, keep it under wraps. Speak softly and carry a sharp knife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our blades are sharp. They, you know it's sharp. So they've had that. They know, how to, they know how information spreads. They know they're the type of organization, type of family that has figured out how information leaks out. They've, had, they've been practicing keeping information hidden for so long that they have to have some sense of the different ways in which it could get out. Like which serving people, like what behaviors indicate this and that. Like the whole thing we're talking about with sieges and how you pass information in and out of a siege with like tattoos on a, on a person's bald head that they let the hair grow back or on a 
pack animal, things like that. These kind of clever, like, oh, that's really clever. The Boltons have been in this game for a long time. So I feel like they would be savvy at such things. And I think it might be their most unique, interesting resource. Yeah, they've got wealth. They got power. They got big armies. They're cruel. But I think that, I think it's this information control, this peaceful land, what, what is suggested by Roos with his peaceful land, quiet people comment really runs deep, I think. It's terror. They still have an open terror campaign against their entire population. No one's fooled. They're not like, again, Roos isn't walking around with his flaying knife going, eh, eh, I'm going to get you with this. No, they, mm-hmm. <laughs> he just sits there quietly with his intense, with his quiet voice and his creepy eyes. And that's it. And they go, ah. And a played man <laughs> banner behind him. Yeah. And that is enough <laughs> for them to be a few, terrorize a few selected people and everyone's terrorized. You don't have to just openly Everyone gathers so I can terrorize. It's, it's more subtle, right? They, they've learned the subtleties of how to do that. If they're willing to flay, or even if they, maybe we don't even know if they had, but they sure seem proud of the heritage of flay. Yeah. Like, that mentality, well, they're certainly not going to think twice about hanging you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's still the threat. The what's the word? The implication. Yeah. The implication is still there. Yeah. <laughs> the Boltons are gonna take you out in a boat. Yeah, it's like the it's like the mountain clans when the southerners are like, God, this winter, it's so much snow, it's winter. It's when they're like, This is autumn. <laughs> it's like you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> yeah. That's what the Boltons are like, hanging. All we did was hang them. What's the problem? We didn't flay them or anything. Like, what are you so upset about? (laughs) All right. Actual Red Kings. Let's talk about a few specific cases here. And we'll start with a quote. King Royce Bolton, second of his name, is said to have taken and burned Winterfell itself. His namesake and descendant, Royce IV, remembered by history as Royce Redarm for his habit of plunging his arm into bellies captive foes to pull out their entrails with his bare hand, did the same three centuries later. Other Red Kings were reputed to wear cloaks made from the skins of Stark princes they had captured and flayed. Mm-hmm. Nice, fun. Wearing clo- people's cloaks is skin. And as we've been told, human skin not doesn't make a very good cloak. It doesn't keep you very warm. So it's definitely a garment of symbolism and expression of this is who I am. This isn't a functional garment. It's like a toga. It's a garment that's a status garment, but a very disgusting status. So truly, the behavior of Roos and Ramsey is nothing new. Trying to destroy Winterfell is a Bolton family tradition. Depraved cruelty, a recurring theme. As I mentioned earlier, I have no examples of like a good deed done by a Bolton. This Barba asking for food thing is the closest we get. (laughs) And again, she could have been scamming them. Who knows? There would be some exceptions. It's impossible for me to go and say, okay, the Boltons are human. So there's nothing supernatural going on here. And then not guess that there's a boring Bolton and buttercup Bolton mixed in here and there. They can't all, they definitely, if we're saying they're human, then we, it doesn't fit that they're all pure evil. That just, even with them being taught, even if it's indoctrinated at an early age, there still would have to be some that are just didn't fit. They didn't take, the training didn't work. So that's three examples of Winterfell being burned by the Boltons. They clearly couldn't finish the job, couldn't destroy the whole castle. It makes, it makes sense. We've seen lots of cases like that. They didn't have the manpower to hold Winterfell themselves, apparently. Maybe that's what Roos thinks would work this time. Maybe, the, maybe his 
His forebears didn't do that. Maybe Royce the second and Royce the fourth just burned it and left it, and it came. It, it recovered its strength while they were gone. Maybe they should have tried to keep it. Who knows? We don't have details on on what happened there. It might have taken a generation more for it to recover its strength. Yeah, as well, it could have been a hundred years before. It could have been no Starks for a while. I mean, it could be kind of like now, where there's the Starks don't are scattered into the wind and scattered in hiding, seemingly yeah. extinct, but will make a comeback. Like, yeah, like what Joffrey's like, wants to scratch the Starks off of this cup here. Like, they're not not around anymore. But with this whole Royce Red Arm business, the whole reaching your ripping entrails out of captives. This is some real like Tywin and Joffrey Bloodraven conversation stuff where like if you don't let them surrender and treat them decently, they'll never surrender, right? Because if, if they know that this is what's waiting for them, having their entrails ripped out, they will fight to the last man because <laughs> like what's the point of surrendering to someone who's going to do that to you? But it's also the kind of thing where he probably did it out in the open so people, the word would spread. It was a terror camp, another example of using terror to spread fear in foes that you haven't even met yet. Like, your foes are afraid of you before you even know they're your foes. But this is an ancient practice. And as we've said, this kind of open, blatant cruelty isn't necessary. Subtlety can work so much more efficiently with a lot less effort. But it also probably did... It probably was effective, though. It probably did keep, like, House Hornwood's probably like, we don't... Yeah, we're not going to do anything. Just please don't pull our entrails out. And there's also probably a lot and a lot of like, given what we just said about selective terror and keeping it under wraps, no doubt there's just countless unmentioned, unaccounted for victims from various houses and common born backgrounds that just, they knew that if they said something, it would get worse or they had no recourse anyway. But, what Ruth said to Ramsey is like, I cut the tongue out of that woman so she wouldn't go tell Rickard Stark. That's all you got to do to a illiterate peasant, apparently, because they can't write, you know, they can't communicate in any other way. You, you don't have to go around killing people when, from his perspective, just keep that perfectly productive tax-paying peasant alive. All you need to do is cut his tongue out, not his whole body. You don't waste a perfectly good peasant. That's my peasant. I own him. I mean, that's how he sees it, right? Something like that, too, by the way, is a constant reminder. Like this person with the no tongue, is it constant? Anyone around them is like, oh, that's what the Boltons will do. You're you right. Know? That's that's the example of the selective terror. It's just a little reminder, but it's there constantly. Like, yep, that, she got her tongue cut out. And they, and they don't even necessarily know what she did. They just yeah. know she mm-hmm. offended the Boltons. So she upset Lord Bolton somehow. So they're just like on eggshells. Like, I don't know what she did. We're not going to do what she... All the things she did recently, let's not do any of them just in case. I don't know. Oh, shoot. I'm wearing yellow. <laughs> Watch your tongue as you... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm safe in the bread for it right now. So, you know, there's <laughs> these, these delicious smelling walls of rye. Nina says, at the same time, I have to wonder how the Boltons would have stayed in, in comparative great power for a comparatively pretty extensive period of time if they were across the board violent sadists who were publicly famous for torturing and killing anyone they liked. Time and again in A Song of Ice and Fire, over-the-top tyranny and cruelty inspires revolt and pushback. With the uh, Heron Whore and his ancestors, Ares II, the Mad King, major pushback there. We see it in the main story with Ramsay Snow himself. She's not saying even or all, all or even many of the Red Kings were good or nice people, but she agrees that there probably had to be a buttercup or a boring Bolton in there somewhere. Because even all these things I've explained about being savvy and 
population control, knowing who is selective terror, keeping it under quiet, that would have to be some times where it leaked out, right? It could, that wouldn't be sufficient for all time, thousands of years. Good, you're done, right? There had to be, there has to be more to it. So I think Nina's right to point out some exceptions and other possible scenarios. Because, yeah, it just doesn't make sense for the Boltons to always be the good guys, the Starks to always be the bad guys over 8,000 years. Like, it just, even with the imagery. Or did you flip that? Did you mean the, the Boltons to always be the bad guys? Yes. It seems like the Boltons aren't particularly ambitious. That if their ruthlessness and their terror are just to keep their population in line and their land stable and their power secure, but they're not necessarily trying to take over the whole North. Until and, now, yeah. <laughs> right. It, maybe once in a blue moon, you get an ambitious leader. Look, just like once in a blue moon, you might get a nice Bolton there right. or just whatever Bolton. But once in a blue moon, you get an ambitious one. And, but anyway, that might be part of the reason why they didn't actually take over Winterfell. Maybe they were just trying to make a point or it was a, the, the culmination of some battle or conflict and they burned it. But like, now we're going back home. Leave us alone. Or they wanted they to establish themselves as the capital and just try to make Winterfell forgotten about. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like recent history, the Starks are just so powerful. It would be like, the lack of successful rebellions, because there have been some rebellions, would maybe imply that they have been ambitious, but it just depends on the Lord, and it depends on the opportunity. Like, maybe they, they wanted to move up, but there just hasn't been opportunities to. This is a really unusual time that the books are taking place in, like a, a, the second age of heroes, as we're calling it. But I started thinking about it from Nina's perspective, how they could stay in power for so long with this ruthlessness, but not inspire a revolt. Well, it might be because they're their sphere of power has been limited enough mm-hmm. and they've kept enough control over it that if they push, like, not the Greyjoys, but the Iron Islanders with their tyrannical ways pushing into the Riverlands, that didn't seem like it was going to last. Like mm. Heron Hall, like even aside from the Targaryens, they might not have been able to maintain that power with that mentality. But if they stay at home in the Iron Islands, they can maybe get away with that, that, where that same Where those MO, cultural values you know? hold. Yeah, they were, right. yeah. And that's what the Boltons are doing. They're, if they keep it more contained, they get away with it without inspiring rebel- rebellions. So what we had was a lot of, in the First Men era, to briefly summarize that, a lot of back and forth, but a slow winning of the Starks. This, the Boltons really had their wins. There was pushbacks. The Starks would have setbacks. But over time, the Starks gained control over more and more of the North. Uh, while the Boltons continued to maintain sort of a s- standard second place position, too strong to beat, not strong enough to overcome the Starks. It was just gradually the Starks were winning. But then there was a big change outside the North. If we look at the North as its own self-contained region, the Andal started to come. And that changed everything forever. Here's where we get into a little bit of a conundrum in terms of the Boltons bending the knee. When the Andals first started to come, the Boltons bent the knee. But then later, we're going to see them independent again. So I think what happened is they bent the knee to the Starks and then rose up and became kings again and then eventually had to bend the knee again. So keep that in mind as we're moving forward because otherwise it might seem like something's off. So I wanted to set the the stage here. At this point, what we have is King Theon Stark, the hungry wolf, who is behaving maybe a little bit like a Bolton to discourage further Andal attacks. Certainly, maybe not Bolton isn't the correct comparison, but ruthless, cruel, bloody, very bloody. There was the Battle of the Weeping Water. And the Boltons and Starks were together. They fought together. The, the Boltons had bent the knee at this point, but not, it hadn't been very long since they had. And 
It would have, it's interesting. You have a, the North united against a common outside foe. And this is a new thing. Like before, they may have united against common outside first men foes before, but a whole new race that's different. A whole new culture with different religion. This was very new, a different kind of foe. Theon Stark was victorious. And to emphasize how badly he didn't want the Andals to come back to the North, he g- gathered a war fleet, put the heads of a bunch of Andals on the prows of ships, sailed to Andalos, and attacked it. <laughs> and burned some villages, captured some people, strung some people up, did pretty awful stuff. The Boltons, I'm guessing, went with them. I was going to ask, I, I was assuming they did, but I don't know if we know this. We don't. We don't know who went with them, but I would guess they did. For one thing, Theon Stark's going to be like, I can't have you running free here in the north while I'm in Andalus. So right, you yeah. should come with me. And by should, I mean you must come with me. And the Bulls are probably like, yeah, I mean, we're going to go over there and get some loot. Yeah. It probably wasn't that hard to convince them. They, they may have wanted to stay back to take advantage of, of his absence, but he wasn't going to. He probably was not going to overlook something like that. <laughs> they also probably want to make sure he's successful. Like, I, depending on how you play it, maybe him going over there, even if he wins, might, his forces might be attrited. Yeah. And so, I, I don't know. But at the same time, like, they don't want the Andals to... Like, if they leave their home and go attack Winterfell, then the Andals show up and take the Dreadford. Like, I don't know. That's, yeah, <laughs> true. It, it seems like the big picture, they're better off for helping him than not. Yeah, I agree. It, as well, we can probably assume that some Andals died horribly in the dungeons of the Dreadfort. Seems like pretty high odds there that a few a few unlucky Andals should should have thought twice about invading the North. But they could have died. They could have been captured by someone else and, and died a lot easier. Some of them, someone may have lived horribly in the dungeons of the Dreadfort. <laughs> well, point, Sean. Well, point. <laughs> I would. I, I, I want to say good said, but it's also such a terrifying thought that. Bad said? No. <laughs> evil said. The evil said. Well, point also evokes the, the blade well, they might have been facing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Boltons also allied with the Marsh Kings to help fight off Andals, as we alluded to before. So that's this is this would have been happening in this era. We mentioned it before, but this is this is when it would have started happening. To frame the rough chronology here, here's the next quote to give you a sense of, of where things were at this point. Yet in the end, even the Dreadfort fell before the might of winter fell. And the last Red King, known to history as Rogar the Huntsman, swore fealty to the King of Winter and sent his sons to Winterfell as hostages, even as the first Andals were crossing the narrow sea in their longships. By the way, can I say, out of all the names in the series, Rogar is one of the ones that gives me the most trouble. Like, I just, I don't like Rogar, but I also don't like Roger. (laughs) Like, I'm not happy either way I say it. So if I said it wrong to you, I, I feel like I said it wrong. <laughs> I think we're supposed to say that as Rogar, but I think it's a variation of Roger that George is using. Yeah. That's my yeah, take I there. Side. <laughs> so the first Andals were most likely crossing their narrow, the narrow sea to the southern kingdoms at first. It's like the Vale, which, well, that's, that's, not, that's not a guess. We're told that. It's not clear when they started coming to the north, but certainly they were in the south first. So the north would have been unnoticed that this was happening. And maybe that's part of why it was so important for the Starks to unify the north because they saw this coming. Maybe that argument was floated to some of the other vassals. Like, look, look, Hornwood and Umber and the rest. We need to unite to face the coming threat of the Andals. 
help me subdue these dang Boltons already, and we can make that happen. And I'm guessing the Boltons were the last great power in the North to fall to to the Starks. Probably the Umbers went first. We know for sure the Barrow Kings did. Yeah, and there really aren't that many others. There's the Sea Dragon Point. There's the, who am I forgetting? Anyway, there's others, (laughs) but none of them are even remotely close to the power of the Boltons. So probably fell first. It also explains why the Boltons have rebelled so many times because they've, they're powerful and if they're going to take the opportunity when it arises, well, being a powerful house and the Starks having ebb and flow of their own power, different leaders, there would have to be some errors. I mean, some, some opportunities, some weak leaders that the Boltons would try to take advantage of. Having lasted longer as an independent power gives them more time to have rebellions also. Yeah, yeah, totally. So let me get deeper into what this conundrum was. It says the Boltons bent the knee as the Andals were first crossing, right? Like, that's what the quote just said. But we're also told they bent the knee a thousand years ago. The Andals started crossing like five, 6,000 years ago, or 2,000 if the histories are wrong, but not 1,000. That, that, even compressing the timeline more, you still can't get it to that small. Like, you can't even get close, really. So that's why my theory is they rose up, or they, we were, they were set, they were defeated, bent the knee, and at some point they rose up and maintained it and, and successfully rebelled and then a thousand years ago, they were set back down. And it was that latter bending of the knee where they supposedly agreed to stop flaying, but clearly. They, they didn't even stop, Roos didn't even stop doing the first night, right? He first knighted Ramsey's mom, which is obviously terrible, but that was banned hundreds of years before. So if he's still doing that, like, yeah, like, of course he's still, of course there's still flaying going on. By the way, it's, I don't think it's hard to, uh, your explanation for here of these two different far separated moments of bending the knee, just think about the, the current scenario that we're going through. Uh, how long ago did a torn Stark bend the knee, mm. right? Now, it's not inconceivable that in the near future, Sansa or John or someone's going to bend the knee again to huh. the king of the seven kingdoms. You know, the north is broken away, but they can come back again. Great so. point. Yeah. I mean, and again, you're right. This is, this is a time, this is the second age of heroes. It's a time for new kingdoms, new borders, and old practices to be brought back, like flaying. <laughs> the practice of flaying from the ancient times of the Boltons, it's, it's gruesome, but it's fitting that it's making a return along with all these other ancient things, like skin changing and, and the old gods, all these other stuff about the old gods, the others themselves, etc. I mean, one of Ramsey's men is called Skinner. Does this sound like... A house that's abandoned the practice of flaming. Mean, yeah, he skins animals. That's the idea. But still, I mean, come on. <laughs> My apologies if you addressed this, but someone did mention earlier, they said some of them flay the ironborn men they captured at Moat Kalen. Did you reference that? Oh, yeah. No, they totally did. You're right. They Thanks, totally did that. Of course, pork sandwich. Um, of course, that's after the Starks were overthrown. Yeah. So that's like, mm-hmm. okay, now we definitely can do what we want because we're not even subject to Starks anymore. But you're right. That is... A perfect example. Ramsey did that, not Roos. Okay. Okay, cool. Because R- R- Ramsey had them flayed and then Roos arrived. Then once those men were out and flayed, then Roos led his army through the yeah, causeway. Roos was like, cool, good job, son. He's like, yeah, well done, son. He just looks at it like, yeah. He just shrugs. He's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> that smells funny. <laughs> <laughs> so this is relevant because as we, when Westerosi houses start taking sigils and mottos, we talked about that. Some... Some Bolton's like, yeah, our blades are sharp. That sounds like the ticket. And let's put that flayed man up there. Let's make that official. Yeah. And they didn't change their mind. No one, no one sw- switched it out at any point that we know of. 
but here's another question. What got them, what got them in this space in the first place? The response to skin changing. But it's also torture. And the idea of getting secrets. A flayed man has no secrets, right? A naked man has few secrets. A flayed man has none. Where does this come from? Where, what are they? I don't think it's just pure cruelty. Like, we like to torture people. What, what information were they extracting in ancient times? Were they learning things about their enemies? Was it just, like, what kind of secrets were they trying to extract? What is, like, why, what, be, what got them so obsessed with torture on a familial level in the first place? I, I feel like it wasn't just, we like it. Houses in the North don't just, that's not really how they do it. It's not like, this is what we like. Like, the, the bull moose of the Hornwoods isn't like, we don't, they don't have that sigil because they love mooses. <laughs> it represents them. Same with the dire wolf, right? Uh, the umbers, they don't love roaring giants and chains. They're like, ah, I'm, uh, they identify with that, right? It's interesting the way thinking, that like the, the the psychology of sigils. So like thinking of it as a as a response to skin changing, you have to wonder, well, was it successful? Were they able to like root out skin changers mm. in their court by flaying them? Mm. And I propose that probably any form of torture would like oust a skin changer from the form they're in because they would like want to leave the form they're in because they're being tortured. So like, I don't really feel like you need to be like flayed in order to get a skin changer out of someone's body. Like assuming that they're doing yeah. it because like skin changers are skin changing into humans specifically. Mm. Like if you think someone has skin changed into your manservant, so you're like, well, let's, we got to out the skin changer. I, I don't feel like you need to flay them in order to make that happen. But maybe it was successful. I like the idea of bringing human, like human snatching, skin changing into this as a as an angle because we, it's not like it doesn't happen, right? We saw Brand do it. Apparently, it takes an incredible amount of power. But the skin, what Veramir said, his his tutor told him it was an abomination that we don't do that. It's not that they can't. It's that it's not accepted, which clearly means at one point it was happening. They some they had to get together and decide to stop doing this, or it had to become an abomination. That clearly means it was happening. You don't need to make abomination something that no one can do. Like, we don't call entering the mind of someone else through the spirit world an abomination in the real world because no one can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if I could sprout tentacles from my body all of a sudden, that might be called an abomination. But since I can't, like, we don't have a name for it. I'm going to make an attempt to resolve your speculation here, Aziz. It's something we talked about before. It might have just been this moment in time when skin changing was an issue Mm. and or someone had particular success with flaying as a form of torture or terror. It was the culture war of that era. (laughs) That moment in time might have been the moment in time when they chose their banner, Mm. chose their sigil and their words. It could have just been a a coincidence of the moment. And and once that happens, now it is your identity and it follows forward. It sounds like the the Boltons were less like the vampires and more like the vampire hunters in that situation. They were the ones that were like, where are the skin changers like like, looking for them? Ashea, that's perfect. I I absolutely wanted to make that point. I'm so (laughs) glad you did. Because yeah, that's, again, are they the anti-Northman's Northmen or are they just a different kind of Northman? Consider... How many political groups in the history of the world have gained power by demonizing a minority and stoking anger against that minority? Now, skin changers are a different sort of minority, to be sure, because this is magical power we're talking about. But still, if you take if there's prejudice against skin changers in the North, the Boltons could stoke that prejudice 
and be like, we're the ones who are getting rid of all these evil mutants or whatever, abominate, whatever they call them, right? And a lot of Northerners would be like, yeah, get rid of them. And they would back the Boltons on this. And it would be like, yeah, the Boltons are cruel and evil, but they would agree with them. Just like some people agree with certain political parties that are doing some terrible things today in terms of demonizing certain, I'm not going to get too real with it, but you know what I'm talking about. With certain small minority groups that get demonized by certain political parties and people, and every news piece, every think piece, everything is like, look at all the evil they're doing. And it's like, it's not the best example here because skin changers, aren't like a protected minority, but it's a similar energy persecuting people for being a way they can't really control. And it's, it could also be a parallel maybe to, to witch hunts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. And, totally. Great. Example. Yeah. You know, it's also I'm thinking about like the, the sort of the 1984 concept that you need to have a continuous enemy to be fighting, to justify your armies and your taxes and whatever else. Yes. Like, Whatever, whatever bad thing, whatever, you can rotate it over time. But we got to get the drug dealers. We got to get the terrorists. We got to get the skin changers. You always need to have some foe. A great some other. <laughs> invisible, In undefeatable foe that despite your efforts keeps coming back. And this is you know, a great scapegoat keep, because... You got to be vigilant. Scapegoat. This is a great go, scapegoat yeah. because they could be within it. They could be amongst us. Anyone, of, anyone here yes, could be... Could just, yeah, it creates it, paranoia. Really, and no like, one trusts. Kind of like anyone. the witch, you can't really prove that they are that. How do they prove they aren't a witch? Especially, yeah. how do they prove they're not a skin changer? Remember last so week, you get to just kill them and torture them if you want. If you decide they're an enemy of the state, so now everyone's afraid to be an enemy of the state because I might be accused of being. It makes it really hard to rebel because you never know who you can trust to ally with, and that's the exact sort of that's the kind of destabilization sort of anti-rebellion techniques that someone like the Boltons would can keep. They want to stay in power despite their depravity and their evil. Well, if the people can't rise up, if they if their mechanism for them binding together against you is taken away, then that's well, that's something the Bolts would want to do. But last week we talked about how Heron the Black and his grandfather, they practiced a policy of getting the Riverlords to fight against each other, which they were already somewhat predisposed to do. Brackens and Blackwoods, best example. He kept that going, like make them keep them fighting each other and they won't fight us. Same thing. Create this enemy within and they'll never trust each other to to bang together to overthrow you. It fits very, very well, especially given we've ascribed a lot of power, like Machiavellian type power games to the Boltons in terms of how they are savvy about staying in power. So the world changed dramatically when the, with the coming of the Andals. Even though the North held off the Andal conquest, the world changed around them quite a lot. It was still a big change, even if the changes were, were less direct within the North. Uh, there was still no White Harbor at this point early on. It did come eventually. At one point, the Boltons rose with a cadet branch of the Starks called the Grey Starks. The Grey Starks ruled the Wolfsden, one of many houses to rule the Wolfsden before the Wolfsden became White Harbor. Nina says, I wonder what the proposed division of power was between the Grey Starks and the Boltons. Was this a scenario where the Boltons simply wanted to replace the ruling power of Winterfell with someone a little more amenable to the Dreadfort? Or was this going to be a full-out partition of the North with the Grey Starks getting some of the Stark lands and the Boltons reverting to the Red Kings with their own share of lands in the North? The Boltons may have hoped for the latter, may have saved their necks by claiming that they were trying to do the latter, that they were still recognizing the Starks as being overlords, but which Starks is up for debate. Like, oh, we don't like those Starks of Winterfell, but you Grey Starks, we'd rather, we'll follow you. But maybe they were planning on then breaking that alliance and becoming independent. So yeah, it's, it, there's no way to 
figure out the politics of that time. But if the Greystarks were willing to ally with the Boltons, I mean, just that says a lot right there in terms of the political situation at the time. The Greystarks may have resented the Starks of Winterfell. The Stark of Winterfell may have been particularly bad king, maybe weak. He may have been not a bad king so much as a weak king, and they took their chance to, to move up the ladder. Who knows? Who knows? But it's, it's really interesting, the possibilities and all this back and forth between these, these fledgling ancient houses. Here's another quote from the time of Edric Snowbeard. Though Edric is famed for a reign that lasted nearly a century, his rule in his dotage was increasingly erratic. Seeing this, many different factions tried to seize control of his faltering realm. The most obvious threats were from his own numerous and fractious descendants, but others took their chances as well, including ironmen, slavers from across the narrow sea, wildlings, and northern rivals, such as the Boltons. Yeah, so as we've been hinting at off and on throughout the episode, it just they took their opportunity when they could, whenever they thought the Starks were weak, maybe not every time, but some of the times when the Starks seemed weak and Edric probably didn't actually rule for 100 years, but that's the tale. And he was like, when he was super old, he was still king, but not doing very much. I mean, he was actually that old. You can kind of understand why he wasn't doing very much. The guy's well beyond the lifespan of a normal person. What's he doing? They also, of course, were allies in other spots, like the Worthless War that we referred to last year. And it just gives us another example of just Bolton's being super evil. There's this guy named Balthazar Bolton who built a pavilion, which is a big tent, like a tournament tent, a feast tent, a tent for dozens of people out of the skins of sister men. This is the kind of story where maybe it was like he took one skin and added it to his pavilion and they, the story grew into he took a hundred. I mean, why would you only do one skin to make it? It makes more sense to me that he did the full full thing. Because it's it's bad material. (laughs) (laughs) You're coming back to that. Like, would this really be a good tent? (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I thought that a few times, by the way, the idea of like making cloaks out of someone's skin or whatever. My initial image is like this drape of this flap of disorganized <laughs> so shaped skin hanging off your back. I think more likely it's probably strips of it make the trim of the connection okay. or the, the seam of the cloth. Yeah, maybe he lined like his that. tent. Like it was, it was, it's, it was yeah. like a good. Strong wool, but lined with skin. Insulation or... Uh, <laughs> the Boltons would, would know. They'd have the tailors. The Bolton tailors have all sorts of yeah. ways to use human skin. You don't want to hang out with the Bolton tailors. <laughs> <laughs> but this is also kind of odd to me. Another thing that's weird to me about this is it's a hundred sister men. He said, why sister men? They're trying to conquer the sisters and they were fighting the Vale. They were fighting the, the Aaron forces. So he was doing that to the locals? Like... Why not to the enemy? Like it seems like I don't know. Maybe they, maybe the enemy, maybe the locals were siding with the vault, the the veil. So they were. He was trying to teach them a, a lesson. But still, it does. It still makes makes me a little curious there. But not too much because I don't want to think too much about a hundred skinned people. <laughs> kind of hard to avoid in this episode, though. Has there ever been a Stark Bolton marriage before the one in the Dance of Dragons? Now, of course, it's not actually a Stark Bolton marriage because that's but. Still, the question remains, has there been a Stark Bolton marriage before? This quote from Roos in reference to the marriage raises more eyebrows than a person has on their face, especially if you've been around Boltons because, you know, they may, they may take one of your eyebrows from you. <laughs> like, I don't like your expression, so I'll shave your, flay your eyebrows. You can't look surprised anymore. Here's the quote. 
The bride had the place of highest honor between Ramsay and his father. She sat with eyes downcast as Roos Bolton bid them drink to Lady Arya. And her children, our two ancient houses will become as one, he said. The long enmity between Stark and Bolton will be ended. First of all, it had been ended until you started to back <laughs> up. And I doubt they will see it as over, given what you've done. <laughs> so yeah, come on, Roos. Second of all, again, that's Jane Poole, <laughs> not Lady <laughs> Arya. And his campaign of silent terror daring people to dispute her identity could fail. But you see, it's a perfect example of everyone knows, at least almost everyone knows that's not Arya, but they're all so afraid to say anything. They're like, yeah, but if we say anything, we're, we're going to get treated like she's been treated. No one, they don't want that. Like, it's like everyone knows, <laughs> but as long as the Boltons have this much power, no one's going to say a damn thing. And if it goes, and if that, if they're able to hold on to that, no one's going to say a damn thing for long enough, it becomes history. <laughs> I wonder if there's some sort of like, I don't know, a parallel or a connection we made to like the emperor's new clothes. That like, <laughs> Naked, it, no he's more. not wearing any clothes, yeah. but everyone has to pretend like he is. But wearing someone else's skin is kind of like <laughs> being uh, yeah, naked. You got a little something the, there, Sean. Yeah, you, know, you mean to workshop that joke a little more, but that's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> I like it, yeah. The Bolton's new clothes. Or the <laughs> Bolton's new wife. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Moving on to more recent centuries. One of the ways the Bolton power has been checked is by the, the rise of new powers. It's like a Dreadfort sandwich. If you were to look at the map again, look at what's happened in the last, say, thousand years. White Harbor founded at the mouth of the White Knife. Carhold founded east of the Dreadfort on the other side of the last river. So you got us, Carhold and Winterfell that have the Dreadfort in the sandwich. They're on other sides, opposite sides of it. And then if you go north-south, south of the Dreadfort is House Hornwood. Even farther south is White Harbor. North is House Umber. So they're completely all sides boxed in by Stark loyalists, two of which didn't exist in ancient times. You kind of see how they took care of this problem in the long term is by building castles that hemmed them in. I mean, it was a Carhold was founded by Carlin Stark, right? A, a second son of the Starks. So they would expect some loyalty. And White Harbor was founded with this permanent pledge of loyalty to the Starks. It was like, all right, one thing we got to make sure. So the, the, it's pretty cl- easy to just go, okay, yeah, they wanted you to be loyal. The unspoken rule there, unspoken in fine print is we need you to be super hyper loyal because we can't have you joining the Bolt. <laughs> that was like, we really need to lock up this loyalty because if you guys flip, if White Harbor flipped to the Boltons, they could definitely overthrow the Starks. That's so much money and wealth and power. Having the city, the city in the North, one of five cities in the entire continent, that alone would probably be enough. So they've really, good thing the Manderleys are hyper-loyal. I've I got to think the Starks have done some things to keep that. Like a Stark value, family value is keep the Manderleys loyal. <laughs> Treat the Manderleys well because if not, the Boltons will swoop into the vacuum and do all sorts of awful stuff. The, Sk- the Skagos Rebellion that took the life of Barthagen, Blacksword, Stark. Apparently the Boltons did not rise up with the Skags on that one. Because there's no hint they did. We hear nothing about that. But maybe they have rallied against the Starks in more ancient times. Like again, the Skags would be a, a useful ally for the Boltons to send them at the Starks. But you guys deal with these guys. Or against the Umbers, like Skags versus Umbers. The, the Umbers are neighbors of the, of the Skagosi more so than the Boltons. So the Boltons could say induce the Skagosi to attack the, the Umbers. 
uh, and then take advantage of that somehow. I would also think not just hemming them in, reducing their tax base and their population to draw soldiers from, it would reduce their market share. No longer would the world trade markets be so much Bolton, right? The White Harbor would have taken over as the largest port. And that would also reduce the Bolton's trade power and just their general wealth. That seems, seems pretty... You agree with that, Sean? Mostly. This might be splitting hairs a little bit, but I, I believe that their wealth would have increased but their relative wealth would have de- ah, decreased. That makes okay, sense. Okay, yes. Makes White Harbor sense. and the city and the trade and the population, all the culture and intellect and productivity of, of, of civilization, would, would, it's the tide that raises all boats. But they relatively aren't being raised as high as the people around them. The wealth and, gap would shrink, yeah. but their total yeah. money would go up. You're right. I totally agree yeah. with that point. Totally agree. And of course... Over time as well, the former independent powers of the North, having had already bent their knee to Winterfell, instead of an independent Umber King that the Boltons might be able to play off of one of the other powers of the North, that was those days were gone, right? There's no one to play, unless they can induce them to rebel. It's no, it's no longer an independent power they're bringing into the fold. It's they're trying to induce someone to rebel against their overlord, which is a lot harder to do, right? There's someone who's already taken an oath versus, hey, independent king, I do what I want. Can you want to help us fight the Starks? You get half of the reward, you get this half of the territory. Yeah, we'll do that. But if they're already bent the knee, took an oath, you're going to need some more, you're going to need like, oh, they've been mistreating you. Look at how badly the Starks have been treating you. If they're just an independent power, simple gaining land might be enough to induce them. But it's hard to get someone to break their oath, especially Northerners. Starks and the Boltons, it might also account for the, the, the gradual increase of the Starks over the Boltons, despite on paper, in some ways, it seems like the Boltons might be better positioned. But just we talked about like their geography, the geography around them earlier. But if the way the Starks treat their neighbors is better, right? We mm, talked about yes. them and with the barrel lands. So, yeah, so it seemed to be that the Starks just treated their neighbors and had a better mentality about leadership than the Barrow Kings did. Yes. And that over time is going to win you allies and resources and stability. Same thing with the, if the Starks made a lot of sacrifice and maybe even gave up some value to increase the, the Manderley's position, the combined, for, even though the, the Starks went down a notch, the combined forces of the Starks and the Manderley's is going to be greater than the Starks would have been on their own mm, without those sacrifices. Yes, and if true. the Boltons are you know, attriting themselves even, you know what I mean? <laughs> if they're torturing yeah, their own population, yeah. it's harder for them to rise and grow without the alliance and trust of people around them. They're willing to fear versus that doesn't. Love. That doesn't. We, so it has to be renewed constantly, right? You have to constantly yes, re- yeah. re-terrorize people. You need to constantly Which causes re- destruction yeah. and not growth and productivity, and it just it just doesn't work in all. It's long the run. way the organization was set up in the first place. The house the house Stark was set up in the first place. Whether its descendants follow the ideals laid out by Brandon the Builder and others is up to them. But they're encouraged from birth to take care of the, to prepare for winter. Whereas, yeah, like you said, whereas the Boltons from earlier, they see the imagery of skinning and skeleton hands. That's what they grow up around. It's a different upbringing. Like you are, it's not prejudice to say that a Bolton is probably going to come out worse than a Stark because you, it's like looking at two schools and being like, well, one was, went to like this really good school and once went to a school where they beat you and, and or didn't go to school. Or didn't or, go to school. You know, yeah, yeah. Or the teachers like were cruel to you. I mean, yeah, like you went to a school that had pictures of skinned people on the wall versus a school where you had pictures of 
pick people taking care of each other. I mean, like, what is yeah. going to sink in? What lessons are going to sink in? Like and, nature and versus nurture, the nature that, arguments, the nurture argument yeah. is huge here. Yeah. And now you will have some people who get the better upbringing and still turn out to be brats or some people will get the tough upbringing and still rise above it. But there's still a tendency. You still, you'd rather start off in one and the other yeah. for a bunch of reasons. And you're being pulled towards, the, like you have to push back against this upbringing that you had. You're like trying to break free from that to be a good person. Whereas as a Stark, it's a little easier. You had a healthy start on that. Probably. I mean, not every Stark, obviously. With that in mind, it's no wonder the Boltons have followed along their ancestors' footsteps, taking the chance to rebel whenever they can. And this current run they're on in A Song of Ice and Fire is maybe their most successful ever. Ironically, will probably end as their biggest failure ever, though. Because it looks like they're going to come out of this done. Like, there's just not very many Boltons, and there may not be any left when this is over. With. They may just, the Boltons may be extinct when A Song of Ice and Fire ends. Or... Sometime prior to that, probably won't take till the actual last page, but... <laughs> and they've probably set up more people to be against him at the end of it, too. Yes, yes. Right? Like, all these things Roos is doing, there's so many, like, the karma of his actions is could definitely bite him in the butt. Like, people who are, people are still mad about the Red Wedding. People still love the Starks. People hate how he and Ramsay are treating the girl they think is Arya and all these other things. They would rather restore the Starks. They just don't want to get flayed <laughs> in the process of doing so. Yeah, it's like the evolution of their terror tactics is a thing that's happening. This is the peak. This is peak Bolton here. They go, They went from open flaying to imaginative, under-the-radar cruelties. They went from open dominance through threats of violence to the old peaceful land, a quiet people threat. The threat of that. That's a threat coming from a Bolton. <laughs> They've learned that you don't have to hang the flayed skins of your enemies, right? You can, on your castle. Let's put it on your sigil. That's good enough, right? Ethics are irrelevant here, I think, is the lesson from House Bolton. It's cruelty. It's like Tywin. Tywin doesn't enjoy being cruel, but he does not shrink from it if it gets him the result he wants. That's, that's an important distinction. Some people just won't be cruel because cruelty is wrong. They're like, it doesn't matter if it gets me what I want. It's wrong. I'm not doing it. So I was it's like, not in the realm of options. Like some yeah. people won't even consider it and then discard it. They don't even get to the point of considering yeah, it. It's never on the table in the first place. You're not like, what? Cruelty would, could, could be the choice here. Maybe, maybe a little cruelty would, would work. Maybe a little sprinkle some cruelty onto that. No, yeah. like right away, someone like Tywin Arus is like, cruelty, you say, hmm, yes, that might get us exactly what we want. And so they do it, and there's no qualms. The consequences are irrelevant because guys like Tywin and Roos are so used to being insulated from those consequences. They're thinking about how it affects their power, their long-term power, how, keeping them in power. That's what matters. Ethics are irrelevant. Ethics are just another tool to keep you in power or to prevent you from being in power, to keep someone else from being in power. Otherwise, it's not a belief system for these people. Part of me, this is a little tangible, but just a thought my mind started spinning on is that I have an instinct to want a ruler who doesn't even consider the cruel option, right? I would like to have someone with that mentality. But it occurs to me that someone who would consider the cruel cruelty option, whether it's because they're willing to be cruel or because they're just intelligent or open-minded enough to consider it, is probably the better ruler if for no other reason, because they might anticipate things their enemies would do that others wouldn't. Mm. I think it's maybe a flaw of like Ned. He doesn't even consider that 
Ned had a little finger would betray him like that. Absolutely. Tyrion might not want to do the cruel thing, but he will have it on the table as something to consider. When people call Ned naive, that's what they mean. They didn't, he didn't realize just how evil some of these people are willing to go. He doesn't, he didn't realize how the, the social boundaries are gone. Like he thinks everyone's restrained by some sort of goodness. Like they're all, we're all holding back. Nope. Wrong. (laughs) To that end, like, cause that's a relatively extreme option to have in it like I, I maybe ned is naive there but okay fine i'm naive too right yeah <laughs> like, it's not a level of naivete naivete like many things it's not just naive or not naive there's degrees of it's not stupid naivety. it's it's lack right. of experience in this it's just, yeah he hasn't been exposed he, like hasn't been around people that are so evil he hasn't lived at court yeah where would he where would he have learned about that some people figured that out they saw the writing on the wall but can't assume that everyone figures that out and for someone to not be exposed to it and still come up with it means there's probably something dark inside of them. And like, I'd rather have someone without the dark thing inside of them. <laughs> totally. Again, let's bring back this point about nothing tells us how ancient, how bloody the ancient North was than entrails in the weirwood or Bran seeing that captive get their sl- throat slit in the weirwood and he can taste the blood. I mean, that's some dark stuff, y'all. And... Brandon Ice Eyes hanging entrails in the weirwood. How is Brandon Ice Eyes hanging entrails? Is that really that different from Royce Red Arm ripping entrails out? Like, who did he do that to? If he did that to just innocent women, innocent peasants, then yeah, that's evil as hell. But what if he did that to criminals or he did that to, well, probably wasn't criminals. He said captive foes. So that's different. That's different. That's not a criminal. That doesn't imply criminals. But still, these could be. But it was a fighting men, essentially. Yeah, these you could know, be it like... Was, it wasn't innocent women. Right, these so. could be raiders. These could be like ironborn raiders. These could be slavers. These could be freaking slavers, man. Yes, right. <laughs> and he might not have done it to every captive foe. Just yeah. the most vicious, ruthless, et cetera, et cetera. Now, probably, like, he pro- like it's the Venn diagram thing. He probably would also do that to decent people just to maintain not his power. probably, possibly. Yeah. But we don't know who he did it to. And that's... and that's that. Uh, the reason I, I said slavers so emphatically is that is who Brandon Ice Eyes hung the entrails of. It was slavers that he... Yeah. So I feel less bad when it's slaver. I'm like, yeah, well, if you're going to do that to slavers, then mm, I'm not going to argue about that. <laughs> yeah, agreed. You would worry that they would start doing that to pe- to lesser criminals. Are you going to do that to, like, someone who owes money? Because then that's that's going too far. <laughs> Way too far. But there's, there's a lot of space between owing money and slaving. So <laughs> hopefully they see it that way. So yes, there's a little wiggle room here for some of these characters maybe not be, maybe not being so black and white. And A Song of Ice and Fire is... We're not supposed to be expecting a lot of black and white type characters. We're supposed to be seeing gray. Gray is what most characters are. Not everyone is Gregor Clegane. Not everyone is Magor the Cruel. Characters that have very and, little good in the middle. Yeah, and I mean, like, I mean, even with Gregor, every time we bring him up as an example, I'm like, even he, like, there's a lot of... of depth to his terribleness. Even Gregor Clegane isn't just like black and white. To me personally, as knowing that he struggles with those headaches and like is in a lot of pain, I have to feel like maybe he isn't in his right mind. You would want to know how much less violent he is if he if he never had a migraine yeah. again. How violent would how, that, how, yeah, how that less would, violent would he exactly, be? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I feel like he would be less violent. I yeah. just, I think that, but I don't know for sure. He wouldn't be a good guy. I don't think no. that. He wouldn't. Yeah. Although if he had been born without that, maybe like as a kid, I don't know, like do you have those headaches from like age three? I don't know. I mean, he seems like he was still violent even as a boy, but I don't know. I definitely think it would have curbed a lot of that. I agree. Like his being in pain is a huge part of why he But yeah, but my, my point being is not to undercut your thing. It's just it would more to underline the fact that, yeah, yeah. like that it isn't just black and white, that these, there's so many levels of gray, even if the gray is really dark gray. 
It's not black. Yeah, e- even when we try to find the most extreme examples, there's some some level of understanding or explanation behind it, right? E- even if not justification, we can still... Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, there's something behind it. So there's a few houses that are less gray, like the Brackens, the Peaks, and then maybe here, the Bolton, maybe not, maybe. So these are, as, as Nina calls them, George's favorite narrative heels. The Brackens maybe aren't bad guys so much as they are just frequent losers. <laughs> the Peaks are pretty bad. There's been a series of bad guys from the Peaks, just terrible characters, and the Boltons are similar that way. Let's talk about how this, how this is thematically a thing for the Boltons and the, the elements that run throughout their story, both in modern and pre-far gone times, things that have been kind of true, the way that George presents them in a way to inspire certain thoughts within us to make our subconscious stop and think, even if we're consciously not doing that ourselves. So let me see if we can, what we can get out here. So this is this anti-Northman's Northman thing, which, keep in mind, it might make them even more Northmen in some ways. Okay, there's little things that we've mentioned already, like the lack of beards. That's one thing. Ramsey has an earring, which I, I have no problem with men wearing earrings. I have both my ears pierced. I don't wear them anymore, but I've never seen another Northman with an earring. So it just seems like culturally out of place. Maybe it just wasn't described, but it just seems unusual. Just a little symbol of different. Not bad, but different. I feel like, and I'm curious if anyone with piercings can tell me, I don't have a single piercing, so I can't know. But I feel like an earring would be unpleasant in the North in the winter. Like I, I feel like that wouldn't like, be safest or best, but like people have piercings in winter all the time. But like, I don't know. I feel like touching it, it would be like really cold or something. Mm, So I'm curious if anyone in the chat can tell me because I don't, Aziz and Sean can't really. (laughs) As far as hunting, there's this hunting tradition with the Boltons, but usually it seems to be hunting people. There's this Rogar the Huntsman, the last Red King. Hard not to get Ramsey vibes from a Bolton named the Huntsman. Hunting meat, of course. It's all well and good. That's normal. But hunting for sport, Seems very non-Northern. We, we, the Northerners aren't really sportsmen. They're too, life is too harsh for sport. Like, they don't do tournaments. They do the occasional melee, and the melees are a lot more violent. So I think maybe this is another little tiny tidbit that shows them a little culturally different. They don't also don't have resources to waste. They have enough resources for some kind of hunt or tournament. We're going to set that aside for winter, yeah. not for some festival or whatever. There's no overt connection that they have to the old gods. We've never seen like Roos praying to the, at a heart tree. Not that it doesn't mean they don't, but it's just something that George doesn't give us that image. The only connection maybe is their, again, their eye color, which maybe we've got in our Weirwood episode, we have a theory on the Weirwood helping a house maintain its uh, its look. That ha- it would explain how these looks have lasted for thousands of years. Let's get a little deeper into the anti-skin changer thing. So, there was a time in which the children were enemy of the first men. A long time, the children were the enemies of the first men. This could be where this developed. The children, would, we talked about as, back then, where the children could get maybe get into your dreams or use animals to attack humans like part of their army, control them and send them at people, things of that nature. <laughs> that nature. <laughs> being against the Starks, being anti-direwolf. If that's their symbol, then, you know, we want to kill some direwolves and skin them. Maybe also kill some mooses, their, their, their neighbor, the Hornwoods, or some skin some umber giants. I don't know about that one. But I've never heard of a Bolton skin changer. Doesn't mean there haven't been. I've never heard of a lot of other houses skin changers. Doesn't mean there weren't them. But... Still, kind of interesting. The whole, as we talked about, like picking on 
a small group that can't defend itself and declaring them to be an outsider and stoking anger against them. When the children were an enemy of all humanity, that would have been really easy. They would have already been an enemy to, to talk about and to rally against. And if certain humans started taking the powers of the old gods, let's say after the pact, they agreed to not cut down the trees and not do all the stuff, start worshiping the old gods and to stop killing each other. Well, at no point have we envisioned a monolithic society. We discussed at the time, some of the children of the forest probably weren't happy with this arrangement. Maybe maybe that's the group that made the others. Likewise, there would be an example of perhaps humans that didn't agree with the pact, that still wanted to, still saw the children as evil or abomination or destructive or what have you, or just too different and wanted to do away with them. And so you have the Boltons or the, maybe the, the rallying, the house to rally behind for things like that, fighting against skin changers, fighting against these evil old powers that still permeate our society. So that, that could explain a lot if it started in way, way back then when those things were a problem or things were on people's minds, when those things were culturally front and center. Now, if we look at it the other way around, look at this the other way around. What if the start, what if the Boltons are actually more northern than anyone else? What if they're more, in what way? Let's, let's just, just try to frame the argument the opposite way, just to see where it takes us. The Starks have fought against quite a few skin changers. The Starks conquered Gavin Grey Wolf and Sea Dragon Point, just killed the Marsh King, married the daughters of this other skin. So the skin changer blood in the Stark family might come from taking it by force from people who were born that way. And here's an interesting example. Look at how Egrit frames this story. The wrath of the old gods is carried out via House Bolton, or so it would seem, in this tale of Baal the Bard. Quote, The song ends when they find the babe, but there is a darker end to the story. Thirty years later, when Baal was king beyond the wall, and led the free folk south, it was young Lord Stark who met him at the frozen ford and killed him, for Baal would not harm his own son when they met sword to sword. So the son slew the father instead, said John. Aye, she said, but the gods hate kinslayers, even when they kill unknowing. When Lord Stark returned from the battle and his mother saw Baal's head upon his spear, she threw herself from a tower in her grief. Her son did not long outlive her. One of his lords peeled the skin off him and wore him for a cloak. She doesn't say who, but well, I think we can guess which lord it was. Like, gosh, which northern house could that be? Peeled the skin off? Well, it could be anyone. Eh, we'll never know. So Grit <laughs> admits this is the bard's version of the story, that it's maybe dramatized. John's like, that's a lie. You know, he does not believe the story. But it's a story that when you're analyzing A Song of Ice and Fire, you have many reasons to come back to this Bale the Bard story. But this is probably one of the more obscure ones. Looking at it from the Bolton perspective, it's usually <laughs> for other reasons. So here we go. Domerick Bolton, who was a student of history, according to his father, could have been consulted on this. Were he alive still? But he's not. In this story, the Stark invokes the wrath of the old gods and is skinned for it by, because of his kinsling. That was his punishment. And he like, allowed the Boltons to do that. So it could be the implied moral of the story that the worst punishment is meted out to kinslayers, even if they do it by accident, just to go, just to enforce the Northern cultural heritage of how important kinslaying is as a value. 
But it also could be looked at in another way. I've always wondered about this, but never really thought about it from a Bolton perspective. I wondered, is this like, is this, is Grit telling us that a Stark is going to kill another Stark without knowing they're a Stark? I don't know who that could be. Like, who, like, we know John doesn't know he's a Targaryen. So, does he going to kill Danny before finding out she's Targaryen, that he's Targaryen, and then afterwards find out that he's a Kinslayer? Maybe. I don't know about that. It doesn't seem like right. Things like he's going to find out before. And I like to think that the old gods would understand some nuance there. Like, it's, I don't know. I, I, I feel like he wouldn't be damned and cursed for that if, if like, he just didn't know. Yeah, are these the Old I mean, Testament old gods yeah, or the New know. Testament I mean, old like, gods? I, I don't know. <laughs> if Grit's dead, the gods hate Kinslayers even when they kill unknown. Yeah, she's pretty explicit, yeah. but this is well, a Grit. Not yeah. Some, yeah, that's yeah. a Grit, not the old gods themselves. <laughs> and what unknowing of whether you're kin or unknowing of whether you're going to be killing that person by doing like, whether it was on purpose or on accident or whether you knew or not. So I wonder about that. I wonder if this is a lesson, whether that's it's foreshadowing a Stark killing another Stark. It could be Ramsey killing Roos, though, because that is heavily foreshadowed to happen. We saw it on TV. That would be Kinsley. That wouldn't be accidental, though. It would be, seems like it would be pretty intentional. So there's still a, not a direct comparison here in that sense. Is it possible someone kills Arya? If she's disguised as someone else, Oof, that's dark. No, she's dark. I guess it's possible. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's the stretch to see how that connection would come, but like, I assume somehow eventually Arya is going to come back into the fold of the other. Maybe, maybe it has to do with Rickon. Maybe Rickon is killed by accident because Rickon's death in the show seems like it isn't going to happen the same way, if at all. But I could see him dying. And, and he also be... might be someone who isn't recognized as he grows from a young boy to a young man. Yeah, you never know. It's possible. Especially if he's got some armor on, if he's a helmet, or if he's presented as though he's someone else. Yeah. So, anyway, some possibilities there. If we, one other idea I entertained was that maybe Roos killed Domerick himself and is just, and is just, isn't open about it. I don't really think so because he w- was reluctant to kill Ramsay as a baby because of the old Kunslain curse, which is a weird thing to lie about. It's like, why would you? He's just kept telling this to Theon. It seems like I, don't, I can't imagine what his incentive to lie about that is. So I, I, kinda, I discount this idea, but I wanted to throw it out there. And Dom, and why would you want to kill Domeric? Well, because Domeric is learning history, tournaments, the high harp. Talk about not being Northern, right? <laughs> like, you can't be an instrument of the old gods if you're into that stuff. That's not Northern. That's a, that's a Southerner. <laughs> that's a knight, right? So I don't know. Maybe that's the, maybe that's, if you want to look at it from a, karmic perspective, the old gods struck down Domeric because they didn't want a guy like that ruling the Dreadfort. They wanted, they wanted a northerner. <laughs> someone with northern values. Someone who wasn't raised at... Someone raised at the Dreadfort, not the Redfort. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what makes them so anti-northern. Destroying the Starks when the realm needs the Starks the most to fight against the old powers. To, if, it's, if they're the instrument of the old gods, then why are they then they're the instrument of the others, not the, the ones that are the bad side of the old gods, not the ones that want the North to survive and exist and thrive. Because the Starks are the number one historically yes, defense against the old powers, the dark side of the old powers. And, and so you talk about taking out the best defense against that, taking out the Starks, taking out Winterfell? Symbolically and logistically, that's going to set you up to be crushed by the others, isn't it? As when they're needed the most. These two powers and concepts collide when Roos goes hunting for wolves. (laughs) And when he's in Arya's presence, including pups, 
and has them skinned for gloves. It's a really symbolic moment for a lot of reasons. Their short-sighted rule, as well as the more straightforward, just Bolton versus Stark enmity, skinning versus wolves, their house sigil versus their house sigil. A pair of gloves is nice, but the lone wolf dies. Pack survives. House Stark is the best equipped to lead the North during winter. This is the worst time to kill off Starks. <laughs> it's the worst time. Marrying the murderers of the Starks and a Southern house, no less, bringing their influence North, bringing the phrase into the North. This is, these are people who don't understand winter, people who don't know how to fight against. They don't understand those challenges. This is, they're making it worse. <laughs> this made me think of something. I think that there's a lot of parallels to draw between Roos and Tywin, sort of cold long-term, patient, ruthless leaders of ancient houses. The first time we saw Tywin, he was skinning a stag. Yeah, right? this, on the show, yeah. A, yeah, a similar cool. sort of like uh, scene, opposition yeah. of houses. Lannisters aren't necessarily known for skinning, but that does draw the parallel to Roos, who is known for yeah. skinning. And it's a stag, so it's the Baratheons, of course, yeah. 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 A couple more points here. So winter is coming. The Boltons don't know about the others. Let's, 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 let's add that detail. They don't know about the others. Probably. probably. Let's assume they don't know, but they do. They might not believe, but they should be aware. Roos would have gotten a letter from the wall. <laughs> oh, right? oh, a letter about, well, he got a letter about the wildlings. He didn't get a letter about the, about the, about the old oh, that's the true. walkers. Yeah. yeah, only about the wild, only about the free folks. So. Didn't Tyrion get a letter? How did Tyrion get that? But Tyrion didn't get a letter. Tyrion got a visit from Alistair Thorne, yeah. who he mocked. Yeah. <laughs> and the hand rotted yeah. before he could show it to people. But yeah, so that was... So okay. Most people still don't know about that. And again, let's just assume Roos doesn't know. So what he does know is coming is winter. Maybe this is the Bolton way, if you really want to be generous here, and it's not going to excuse it, but it's an interesting consideration for Northern survival. What do the Northern... What do nor, older Northern men do when there's no food? They pretend to go hunting and just to remove their mouth from the equations, right? There's a, a way to look at this. That's what Roos is doing. He's getting rid of all the excess mouths in the North so that the North can survive winter. You say, hey, it's, it's terrible to create a war when winter's coming. Well, yeah, but if there aren't any others coming, it's just the starvation part. And so fewer people to feed, there is a good side to that or an upside to that. I mean, not a good side, an upside to that or there's more food to go around. You need soldiers to fight the others. But again, he's not calculating that. He doesn't consider that part because he doesn't think, the, he doesn't, he's not aware that there's an army of the dead marching. So, you could be saying like he's getting rid of his extra, killing people off, getting them all to die. There's going to be more food to go around. Is that actually better? I wouldn't agree with it, but he may see it that way more pragmatically to, to, for the North to endure. You need, I still think that that people. could be an error or short-sighted, especially if you don't know quite the timing of winter because you're also eliminating able bodies to harvest food. Mm-hmm. to. to right now, you can't. You can't harvest to, food. Like at this point, this stage of winter, you're past that. Earlier in autumn, is, yes, but this is winter now. I'm using harvest food in a more generic okay. way, like to preparing for winter in general. Yeah. I feel like Roos has been on this path for a while, and I, maybe he's accelerated the path because winter is arriving now. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, he definitely... I, I just think... I'm not saying he's doing it for these reasons, <laughs> but I'm wondering if it actually helps the North survive as a nation if, there weren't, if it weren't for the others. Because obviously with the others in the mix, this is, a, this is all terrible. And it's horribly unethical anyway. But having fewer mouths to feed when... Star- like if it is going to be starvation in the North, which we already do think is going to happen, then it's not as damaging to start a war right before. It's still bad to start a war. 
You know, you understand what I'm saying? It's just, I'm not, none of I this guess. is excuse. None of this is justification. Maybe I'm terrible. naive and just can't consider this angle of, a, <laughs> yeah, like if the, if it, of ruthlessness. It's the whole, but, it's a trolley problem, right? If It, it seems it, like, okay, yeah. So let's say even if it is, let's say Roos is that cold and ruthless and and No, ruthless. He's ruthless. <laughs> yeah. No, he's ruthful. Uh, actually, he's Roos. completely ruthless. <laughs> 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 to be willing to kill people just so there's less mouths to feed. Why doesn't he kill old people and handicapped people and babies? Because like, it would be too obvious. You can't just go around killing people. That's not what he's doing. He's like a war is more like, like this war already happened. He didn't start the war. He's continuing it. He's fighting Stannis, right? Instead of yeah. just being like, okay, Stannis, you can take care of this for, for us. I'll bend the knee to you. Yeah, you're you know? saying he's not, he's not trying to go kill these men on purpose, being ethical and thinking that it's going to help. You're saying he's like, well... It's not the worst thing in the world that this has happened. Right, right. It's like a silver lining that he's yeah. like, Other yeah. Northerners will look at it that way and be like, well, we needed to get rid of some people anyway. This ruthlessness, it's like, well, we have to... It's, it's like, it's, again, it's the trolley problem. It's like, well, people are going to die. Can we and, reduce the number of people that die? Can we have them die in battle noting, rather than starvation? Like, that is... Like, I would rather die in battle than of starvation. It's know? worth noting that Roos is... Uh, Reserving his people too. Oh, like, yeah. Less if his people are dying in these conflicts. It's coming on his terms, yeah. and his terms are evil. But <laughs> you wonder the Starks didn't have time to prepare their way to prepare for winter. Like Ned, if Ned had been still in charge and there wasn't all this tumultuousness, you would have had that preparation time that you were talking about. Like this war happened at a really bad time. It happened when they should have been in the fields. That was when that harvest needed to be collected. So part of the starvation is the timing of the war. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's an interesting thought exercise as to when things are tough and you have to make sacrifices, what do evil people do to make sacrifices versus what do good people do to share the burden? Evil persons will be like, we'll share the burden. We don't have to share the burden. We just get rid of people. Whereas the good people are like, how do we all suffer equally so that we can all survive? Whereas the, the, the selfish people are like, I don't need to suffer equally. I'll just kill some of you. <laughs> So it's more like trying to understand the reality of, of evil, pragmatic people rather than just trying to justify it. Definitely not justifying it. Ramsey burnt Wintertown. I can understand why he burnt Winterfell as them his enemy, but why did he burn the Wintertown? That's just a refuge for peasants in winter. Like, that's not a military target. There's no value there. There's no... I doubt Roos was happy about that. Yeah, Roos is probably like, well... Like, that's just Ramsey's irrationality uh, or whatever. On the other hand, they blamed it on the Ironborn. Maybe that's the other thing. He's like, well, we got to make it look like the Ironborn. That's what the Ironborn would do. So, also, they made peasants rebuild it and then killed them. It wasn't actually a big problem for them. (laughs) But it's still like a lot of lost resources. Yeah, it's symbolic. All the wood that was burned could have been saved to be burned during winter. Absolutely. It's symbolic of them being anti-productive against the Northerner. Like they're anti-Northman's Northmen doing all these like things that undermine their preparations for winter. And the names. We pointed out the names like Royce, Rogar, Ramsey, Roos, Balthazar. It's the first non-R name there. Barba, right? B's and R names. These are not really Northern names. They're not unheard of. I mean, there's a Roos Riswell, but he's named in honor of Roos Bolton. <laughs> it's not just, oh, let's make another Roos. Uh, there's, a, there's a family marriage there, Bolton to Riswell. So anyway, what does that mean? These names, it's just another little symbolic hint, little detail that George created for the Boltons. It makes them a little different than the rest of the North. We also wondered if there's a connection to House Royce with so many guys named Royce Bolton especially with the Red Fort, which is near Runestone, and Bolton fostered Domerick there. Nina says, the first name Royce is used elsewhere without 
connections to either Runestone or Bolt. Like there's a Royce Blackwood, which is interesting because Blackwoods are in the South, but Roy, but they're also old gods worshippers. So that is a maybe a overlap there. There's also a couple other examples here. Royce Caron, Royce Coldwaters. There's a lot of Royces out there. Coldwater is also really near Runestone. So that's also in that general area near near Red Fort and all that in the Vale. There may have been a Bolton Royce connection, kind of like how there was a Royce Stark connection going back several generations. The Boltons are a major house. They're a prestigious family to marry into, even if some people would be like, I don't know about that. They'll take a Bolton daughter, but they don't, I don't know if they want to send their daughter to the Dreadfort. <laughs> it's probably, I could see that being a link. You brought up Tywin a few times. I brought up Tywin a few times. I think we're supposed to see Roos as the northern version of Tywin in a lot of ways. He's not, he's not as rich, but more evil, probably. I don't even want to give Tywin that much credit. <laughs> Tywin yeah. is the western version of Roos. Okay, okay. <laughs> and like it's, it's, their families are similar. If we're just comparing the family rather than the individuals, like a family that's really hard to get rid of. They've been around forever and they're very entrenched. It's like, gosh, why can't we get rid of them? So I have this whole section on flaying, but we don't have time for it. And maybe you all will be thankful that we're not going to talk about it because it's pretty gruesome. I'll maybe I'll save this I'm for okay some other with time. That. <laughs> I'll save this for some other time. We have a couple of sections like this that we've we've didn't have time for. A real world section that we cut from another episode. Like we had this whole thing on like human sacrifice from past episode that I cut, and I still am holding on to that. So we'll we'll bring that back someday. Yeah. I, I started doing a little reading and research about it. And I was like, I, I, for, at first I was like, okay, it's like facts and dates from history. But eventually I was like, oh, this is disturbing. It started to really get to me and yeah. I just had to stop. Yeah. 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 How, especially when you start getting into like the, the, I don't know, the, 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 the medical, like the effects that I'm like, all right, that's enough. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I will throw that one out there because it's symbolic too of the whole winter thing. You usually, the usual way you die, if you've been flayed of your whole body is, hypothermia. You die of cold, which is super symbolic of flaying and the north and winter is coming and all that and trying to protect people from the cold. It's like they're doing the opposite. It's like, ooh, that is, that's, a, that's a deep cut. <laughs> Wait, no, we need to be a thin, a very a shallow, shallow cut. cut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so in this section I had, in this section that we're skipping for now, there's a bit about books, real books in the world made from human skin. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes, right? <laughs> One of those Edgar Allan Poe. There's an Edgar Allan Poe book that's bound in human skin, which is just all fitting. Most of them are, are medical textbooks, though. Or just, I don't know if they're textbooks, they're medical. Treases. Medical textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, one other note from this. In the Wikipedia entry for Flame, House Bolton gets mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Mainstream, y'all. Mainstream <laughs> flares. Oh, let's see. I just would like to mention that there is also a TV tropes for flaying alive. And the quote for the page is from Roose Bolton. Like the the <laughs> description quote is from is from him in the series. So That's um, but fantastic. obviously it's a very long page with lots of examples from many things. So yeah, if you want more flaying, we should look at TV tropes too. <laughs> another thing we'll have to save another time is is real world leeching and the value of leeching. But I will put out that leeching is recognized today as medical. Even now, it's still useful. Although in a very different way, yeah. they're not, it's not because they want to like take blood yeah, out of your body it, yeah, because exactly. like the saliva of the leeches has like properties. That yeah, it has inflammatory skin or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. It's not for it's bad blood and to balance your humors. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's not <laughs> that. So Roos, Roos may have been treating himself kind of accidentally in some ways that were helpful, but probably not because he's just throwing them all over his body for just because. But it's funny. I, I, there's a funny moment here too though because Arya is thinking about he, she hears 
Walda's letter to Roos about, you come, you reunited again. I'll, I'm sure to give you many strong sons to succeed you at the Dreadfort. And Arya just like pictures a baby covered in leeches. It's <laughs> 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 like, ah, it's funny, but wah. <laughs> it's also not funny. <laughs> but it's also like, yeah, Roos probably would do that. Like his baby cries like, some leeches on that baby. Leech it up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> what a great dad you're going to be, Roos. <laughs> oh, man. So a little bit of outlook on House Bolton to close out today. We've covered a lot of the about Bolton plot stuff elsewhere, like the pink letter, Ramsey and Roos, the fray element, the battle of ice, stuff going on at Winterfell now, Theon, just a lot of that stuff we've covered elsewhere. But let's talk about Let's use a little of history to do a few predictions. Just a couple of things, a couple of final questions, and then that's our episode. Quote from Lady Dustin. The Northmen, they fear the Dreadfort, but they love the Starks. That really summarizes it, doesn't it? Like, that's, that could be a capstone for this whole episode. The different styles of ruling, which is why we bring up Tywin, because Tywin's the, the whole, it's better to be feared than loved. But he's also the guy that says, if you don't, if you don't let them surrender, they won't ever surrender. If you if you torture them, so yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. So they're not exactly identical, but that's why they fear the Dreadfort and love the Starks. I wonder, uh, Ramsay, if he kills, if he if he, if he really did kill Domeric like Bruce says he did, and even if he didn't and does kill his father, that'll be kinslaying. One where he's either going to be one or two time kinslayer, maybe more if he kills Walda and she's got a, and she's already had a baby, so there'd be a third one depending on how whether she's actually given birth or not, or how far along she is, whatever. So if the kinslaying curse is true, Ramsey's going to end his house through kinslaying or through the, the real consequences of it if they aren't supernatural. And by just regular, normal means, by giving people who hate him a chance to get their revenge. If he kills Roos, a lot of the people that are with Roos are going to abandon him because they, they were with Roos, not Ramsey. They were, behind, they were backing the strong guy, not backing the dread for it. They weren't backing this claim. They were backing this leader because they're afraid of him. They're not afraid of Ramsey in the same way. Ramsey's dangerous, but not nearly in the same ways. He's not scary in a campaign scenario. He's scary if you're in the same room with him, <laughs> but he's not scary on a, in a military campaign in the same way Roos is. Ramsey's not as established. He might be ruthless, but he's also erratic and, mm-hmm. and untrustworthy. Roos has these other virtues going along with his ruthlessness. And I also want to point out that Ramsey and Euron might get along. They're like, hey, I'm a kinslayer. Nothing happened. <laughs> hey, bro, me too. Yeah. How many, how many kin yeah. did you kill? I did three. Good yeah, job, me too. I killed three. Yeah, what a coincidence, <laughs> yeah. bro. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, so it is a little bit ironic or karmic, twisted karma. That if Roos had that question, he's like, Theon, what do I do? What is a northern worshiper of the old gods who believes that kinslaying is evil or, or, or pun, not evil, that kinslayer, kinslaying is punishable by the old gods? What am I supposed to do to Ramsay, who killed my other son? How can I punish him in a manner that will matter? It's kind of a silly question. Send him to the freaking wall, man. There's plenty of things you can do. <laughs> Chop off all his fingers. <laughs> Cut out his tongue and chop off all his fingers. Yeah. And now he's do a lot less harm. Yeah. So what's happening maybe is the, the Roos is going to, a Bolton again will be the instrument of the old gods in a sense that the Boltons are going to be overthrown from within. And Lady Dustin suggests that Roos might be trying to become king. That might be his end game here. He's like, yeah, why not? Why not? name himself king after all this is done. After he defeats Stannis, he'll have 
No one's going to be able to challenge him. Some people may even support it, like earnestly support it rather than just like support it because they have to. To me, this is a little sneaky way for George to float the idea of Northern independence at the end of the story. Not with the Boltons in charge, but just independent, right? Like it doesn't have to be a Bolton king for the Northern independence to be the idea that's actually being suggested. Just like the Bale the Bard thing wasn't necessarily a Stark kinslaying another Stark by accident. It could be, that might not be the message there, but it still could be relevant. So I think this is maybe a little oblique reference to Northern independence that uh, we could be faced with at the end. Let's, let's return to the seminal notion of Starks that Ned says at the beginning, the lone wolf dies and the pack survives. That philosophy, that way of life that Ned probably learned from his ancestors. Ned probably wasn't the first Stark to teach a young Stark that lesson. The Starks are a pack, not currently together, but slowly reuniting. Maybe they won't all make it, but they're slowly reforming into pack status, I hope. The Boltons are more like the Sith of Star Wars, like the two at a time almost. You can only have one heir. The other heirs kill each other. Bolton's like, that's the way of the world. He's like, it's probably better. He's like, Ramsey's going to kill all my other sons anyway. Like, yeah, it's probably for the best. <laughs> probably for the best. But that is how like a Sith Lord would say it. Like, yeah, that's just the best. It's probably for the best. Less competition yeah. for me and my princess it's, or me and my master. It's yeah. strange. Yeah, that's no way to thrive, especially not in winter, like not long-term. That's, that's a way for an individual to get the most they want. It's, not, it's no way for a culture or for a society. In the short term. Yes, in the short term, yes. And if you're really good at it, you can make it last your whole life. But it causes so much suffering in other people. And yeah, I mean, and it's probably going to go like the Sith. Like the, the master, the apprentice is supposed to try to kill the master to take over. And that does seem to be the way it's heading. We did poll folks a while back and most people do expect Ramsey will kill Roost. A good third of people, maybe a little less than a third, thought it would go the other way around, maybe. Or that Roots would outlive Ramsey. Not necessarily that Roots would kill Ramsey, that he'll outlive him. Yeah. That is our episode. We got some questions from y'all. Let's talk about that real quick. Callista Cross. Hey, Cal- hey, friend. Says, I finally caught up with Val Arboretus. Just popping in and we'll listen later. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Callista is one of the few people we've ever met that that stands some Boltons. When we first met Callista, oh, yeah. she had a Bolton flag. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You're right. So it's a perfect time for Calista to pop in. <laughs> yeah. And her name is Cross. It's, you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. uh, you're a secret Bolton. Watch out for her, y'all. Christina Kay says, if the Starks have a lot of wargs and the Boltons hate the Starks, it could be symbolic. Like, if you want to be an animal, I'll skin you like one. Yeah, I do think that fits in that symbolic range of, of how we view this. And yeah, revealing no secrets, like you're a skin changer, will we'll, we'll make you admit it or... or this is an appropriate punishment for wearing the skins of animals in, an, in a supernatural sense rather than a literal sense. Definitely like that. Definitely like that. Oh, wondering about leeches. Before we get to the trivia question, I wonder about leeches. Another question, like what happens if Melisandre gets leeched or like a white or a children of the forest? What does that blood do? Because Melisandre used Stannis' blood and, and, and Gendry's blood because it has king's blood for her prophecies. What do these other brands of flavors of blood do? What is, do you think Children of the Forest blood could take some pretty wicked visions, man? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'd want to see a vision from a, the blood of a white, but I guess the white blood is hardened like cold hand. I don't even know what the deal with their blood is. I don't know how that works. 
They have yeah, at least you might not be able to get any blood from them. Yeah. Can you get blood from a stone? What would a, <laughs> yeah, what would a mosquito do to a car tire? I'll land on it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, wow. Mosquitoes. Yeah, Mel Saunders should just use mosquitoes instead of leeches. Anyway, trivia question. Who really did die after being leached? Who's, who's poison was it? Gerald Garcia says Erea, as in Erea Targaryen. And that might be also correct. I was thinking of Gregor Clegane. Gregor Clegane definitely died after being leached, after po- being poisoned which by case, Mountain Spear. Which case, congratulations to Donnie Stats, who did guess it. Yes. So anyone else that was leached after being poisoned probably would have had a similar thing happen to them. But what makes it unusual is that most people wouldn't have survived the poisoning. So they wouldn't have gotten to the leeching stage. <laughs> they would have been like, too late, you're dead. But but referring to Gerald Garcia and Erea, I might be... We have to look that one up. Did you look that up by chance, Shay? What? Did Erea get leached? I thought she did get leached. Okay, I that so that, was the whole thing. That all right, she cool. Was, so that's two I answers I will look then. it up and see what it said about... That's great. Good catch, Gerald. We'll c- confirm that in a moment. In the meantime, let's start saying goodbye, y'all. The We mentioned a few of our other episodes. Battle of Ice which has features our, our friend Jeff Hartline, Brendan B. Fish. The Barrow Kings episode. We mentioned the Werewood episode with the genetic, our theory about genetic markers and, and keeping the look of certain houses going for so long. The, the reason that theory, the reason we, we started on the theory is that there seems to be a pattern with houses that have a look. that corresponds to houses that have a heart tree. Houses that don't have a heart tree don't seem to have a, a distinct look. It's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not a perfect connection, but it's pretty strong. So. That's either our, I actually can't remember if that's our Werewood episode number one or our Werewood episode number two, but just listen to them both. They're both fun. Mm-hmm. Next week, Sean, you had something to say? I just wanted to plug the video I just made. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to mention that too. Actually, I almost brought it up earlier because you were talking about colors and, and being assigned a land and pink and, and white and all that color. Yeah. So yeah. Sean did a great video on Better Call Saul explaining the color theory, the color analysis that's present in Better Call Saul. Let me tell you, it's really strong. I have, these ideas have existed for a long time and Sean and Shay have talked about them for a long time and I've been like, huh. And the more they talk about it, the more it, it just keeps being true and more new content comes out from Better Call Saul. It, it's more true every time. So I highly recommend it. Sean, you should, yeah, you should plug it too. And if I could say the more meaningful I've realized it is too. It's mm. not just like, all the lawyers wear blue. Like they use it for foreshadowing. So it's almost like spoilery. Like if before you watch the show, someone told you up front, you know, like red means criminal. Some characters come on screen and you don't know they're criminal yet. Like eventually it comes to light, but it's uh, one of them's got a red tie. You're like, ooh, or a red bandana. It's like, wait a sec, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but once through the course of it, once you start to piece it together, it, it, the show becomes even more rich and kind of kind of like rereading Game of Thrones going back and rereading it with these new insights, you start to see things in a whole new light. And so anyway, I, I, the, the, I've been digging into it. I, I, I'm so impressed with how good the writing and the performance and everything that show is. And it's been bubbling up in me for a while and it exploded out in an hour-long analysis of the colors. Yeah. But, uh, so if you're watching the show, hopefully if you watch my video, you'll get some whole new value out of it. I did put a little timestamps in the in the description or whatever. So if you just want to hear about like, like a lot of people talked about, yeah. right. Like it's known and talked about a lot, red and yellow and blue, but I try to get into purple, black, to, to things that I wasn't paying attention before. But when I started paying attention, it's like, oh my God, this is there too. And it's consistent. It's there more often than I realize. <laughs> right on. So yeah, check that out, my friends. So, Sean did a good job two, there. Can I say two things? One, 
Arreo might not have been leeched. I did a search for leech in uh, searcher.org, which mm. is the, by the way, there's a, I'll put it in the, a link in there. There is an alternative to a search of ice and fire that searches fire and blood. It's not, it's not quite, anyways, uh, I'll put a link just so you, you guys have it. But leeches did not come up in that part of the chapter. Okay. So, it's unclear. A good, good theory there. For, um, for yeah, it is. And Sean, we would like a cat. If you don't mind today, we skipped a week or two. So people are requesting it. Next week, we have Ib and influences on Ib by authors like J.R.R. Tolkien and H.P. Lovecraft with our guest, Gray Waste Tim. He has his own channel and has appeared on several other creators in our fandom. So he's going to come on and talk to us about that fun stuff. So this is a, a, a departure from episodes that were voted on. We would have gotten to Ib eventually anyway. Y'all would have voted on that eventually anyway. But the opportunity came all, uh, up to do it with a guest. So that's what we're going to do. The week after that, we'll be off because we'll be at San Diego Comic-Con. And then we'll be back with another voted on topic. Mm-hmm. And not long after that, it'll be House of the Dragon time. Yeah. Speaking well, of. Yes. So it's... This is the first time we're announcing this, and so the details are not out there for you to join the group, but we are working on putting together a screening of House of the Dragon, a private TV watch party during Dragon Con weekend here in Atlanta. So it'll be here in Atlanta. It'll be at a local theater. So the capacity is pretty large. I'm not going to say any details again until it's like booked and all that, but we're going to make a private Facebook group that people can join and. yeah, anyways, the capacity should be like 300 people. So if you're in the Atlanta area and you're not going to Dragon Con, maybe you still want to come to the screening. That'll be September 4th. And we'll continue to advertise to y'all about it. But it is it is a private party, not for profit or anything like that. Just private. And that would be episode two, right? I think that's episode, episode three. three and yeah. two. Because I think what we'll do is watch the previous episode and then watch the new episode. Oh, okay. Because we'll have two and a half hours in the in the theater. But anyways, yeah, it'll be the third, the second and third or whatever. Yeah, we're, we're probably going to plan some events like, like trivia. Like a a costume like contest well. for sure. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how much time we'll have, but we'll definitely do the costume contest and we might do a little more. But yeah, it'll be the second. We'll rewatch the second episode and then get to watch a third episode all together. Yeah, so folks, if you want to get more content <laughs> Check us out on Patreon or become a Spotify supporter or go directly to our website, make a one-time donation, and we'll send you links to all of our bonus content. All three of those are ways you can get involved, support us, and get something in exchange for your support, whether it's our bonus episodes, whether it's our scripts and notes, whether it's shout-outs, or all of the above. We make that available for you, and we thank those of you who take, take? Who take <laughs> that option to support History of Westeros podcast. Man, Jet is so chill. That is a chill cat. Yeah, I'm just impressed. She's totally relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> you can barely see her just because you're in a black shirt, but... Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everyone who came live to watch today. We're, if you're a podcast listener, you're going to get a chance to consume us a little differently. During the House of the Dragon season, we're going to put our videos directly up. So mm-hmm. there will be... Because we won't have as much time to get them edited. We're going to... And because now that the video format is more widely available, regular podcast episodes will all be video also. You won't have to watch the video, of course. You can just listen to the audio and just treat it like a podcast. And if that's what you want to do, nothing will have changed. But you will have the option to, even if you're watching, listening to our live streams, you have the option to 
watch, occasionally watch, like turn it on when the cat's on screen or when we have a map on screen. But yeah, that does mean that the episodes will be less edited yeah. and uh, that they will be up earlier as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's just, uh, you know. That said, we want to hear your feedback. Whether you yeah. notice much differences, whether you prefer having the visuals, whether you'd rather have the 15 minutes of ums and uhs and pauses cut out. So we'll be looking for your feedback. So this is the first time we're going to bring that up. We'll, we'll keep reminding y'all. Yeah. And, and again, we'll be rec- we'll be streaming Monday nights at 6 p.m. and Saturday afternoons at 3 p.m. That's right. Um, that is our schedule for House of the Dragon Season 1 and maybe future seasons. We'll see about that. <laughs> Thanks to Nina for her notes this time. Really excellent as usual. Some great thoughts on the Boltons and the way they rule and the power of fear and love and all that. Thank you to our patrons for your support. Thank you to anyone who supported us financially. Thank you to anyone who's shared the podcast. Word of mouth is one of the most powerful ways that podcast spreads. I've been doing this for 10 years. Believe me when I say that. Word of mouth is still one of the best ways to share your favorite shows. And we appreciate that whenever you do it because, well, we can't ask for more. Joey, Jesse, Kevin, and Michael, thank you all for the music and the maps that we have to help make this show even better. Thanks to our mods who keep the discussions on Discord and Facebook flowing and friendly. And go check out our friends at Here Be Dragons. They're talking about Star Trek Strange New Worlds as is now live. They probably just got started, so perfect timing for y'all. And, oh, there goes Jet. Jet's also saying goodbye, <laughs> and so shall we. Jetting off. <laughs> Jetting off. <laughs> Until next time, everybody. What to do? Valar, re-read us. 